and welcome to Game Brain, a board game podcast about our gaming group. I am your host, Tom Donnelly. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you have probably heard me say in the past that we have a very special episode today. I may have overused the term, right? Like genius in Hollywood. The term may be seriously overused, but I want you to forget about all of that because when I say we have a special episode today, I truly mean that because I am here with the newest member of our Game Brain crew. Cannot wait to introduce her to you. This is actually not her first time on the podcast. She was on our podcast uh, last year during the uh, the Great Blight, and uh, we have certainly mentioned her name many, many times since because she is also a member of the Board Game Geek team. I could not be happier to be sitting across the table from the Omni Gamer Candace Harris, welcome, Candace. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. That was that was an awesome introduction. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't feel too uncomfortable about that. People people can get very uncomfortable about that, but I truly we oh, you know that was some hype. That was some serious hype. <laughs> we we wanted you to join the the crew before every before we had the year of nothing happening, the, the year of, of total disaster. So, uh, yeah, it, it is every time I've I've. Play, I don't think I've ever played a bad game with you. Yeah, yeah, you know I, I, mean? I agree. Well, well, except that one game of Madeira, where <laughs> where I ended up with more pirates than you. That was that was a little rough. I don't but. mind if you win. I don't mind if you win. It's it's did I have fun? I always have <laughs> always have fun gaming with you. Um, so for for those who don't know, Candice is a uh, is it a correspondent? Is yeah, the right word? Yeah. Yes, correspondent. News correspondent for Board Game Geek part time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've kind of uh, been into the hobby and got connected with the gaming game brain crew. Wow. Um, through Jennifer Schleckburn. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. I met Jennifer a couple years ago when I joined the hobby at our local gaming convention, uh, Strategicon. <laughs> and from there, she's just connected me with so many awesome people, including Tom and the game brain crew. So I'm. And then, Stoked to be here. And then we found out that my, my office where the Friday Night Game Brain crew gets together was almost almost yeah. 100 yards from oh your house. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, now I live about a, like a mile and a quarter away. But before, I was right around the block, and I had no idea awesome games were being played here. Um, I don't know if you know this. There was this weird thing that happened about two years ago when we started the podcast where I got a letter from an inmate who was asking me to send them um, RPG materials for Star Trek, the role-playing hmm. game. No. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing. Turns out this office used to be uh, a role-playing game office, like the the, the makers wow, of the Star the makers of the Star Trek role-playing game. What a coincidence! Now it's board. This game. was their this was their uh, Dune, the role-playing That's game, so also cool. came out of, out of here. It's so weird. In a million years, never would have known that that, that it was. But what a cool connection! Yeah, it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird place. How, how did you? What, what was your entry into gaming? We know Jennifer. Jennifer is the. The gateway for so many people <laughs> in Southern California, yeah, for so, sure. Uh, so it was before I met Jennifer. Um, back in 2018, I kind of, um, I spent many years like playing pretty actively in different rock bands. And I was at a point where I kind of just needed to step away from music and take a hiatus from mm -hmm. kind of leading the band. And around the same time, I had uh, received... Mysterium as a uh, birthday present in 2018, February 2018, and uh, I was already into Dixit because a musician friend, musician friends of um, Matt and me, um, they introduced us to Dixit. I got 
hooked on Dixit, bought like every expansion, took it everywhere anytime I had, you know, four or more people and, you know, Dixit was my jam. Mm -hmm. So then I got Mysterium and Mysterium was just a little bit tougher to understand. So we had to... We had to end up looking, you know, on YouTube for videos. I was like, we're not quite getting everything. <laughs> so then um, I discovered uh, Will Wheaton's uh, Tabletop, I yes. think is, is, yeah, Will Wheaton show Tabletop. Yes. Figured out how to play Mysterium. But then, of course, as YouTube does, recommendations started flowing. And I ended up like seeing all these other games. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, I did not know these games existed uh, I, you know, I grew up playing board games with my family, the classic like Monopoly, Sorry, uh, Trouble, you know, Uno, yeah, yeah. but, and I've always enjoyed board games, but I had no idea how much has been going on with board gaming. And I feel like I kind of like missed out, you know, late to the party here. I mean, not that late though, really. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, when did, when did Board Game Geek go, go live really, right? That. 20 years? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's Or 21 now. That that's not a long that's not a lot of time yeah. really, you know, and and in its early days it was very, you know, it, <laughs> bare bones. It, it, it took it took about 5 years for it to start to really pick up steam and 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 catch on. So Yeah. I, I still think we're in the beginning of this hobby. I don't okay. think we're anywhere okay. near the end. You're doing you're doing great. That's awesome. Did you ever get to uh you ever get to meet Will uh or no, play a game? No, no, I ha- I haven't met Will Wheaton yet. Um I'm I'm loose friends with him actually. Oh, cool. We the uh, uh Cal who came to who until he moved to Canada would be at our a fixture at our Friday night game nights uh grew up with him and so I've played many games with uh with uh, with Mr. Wheaton he's a, a really great guy really really a lot of fun and a real great ambassador for the hobby too very very cool yeah yeah so yes yeah, so from there I kind of just started buying board games that I would like see on um tabletop or you know I started discovering other YouTube channels and I would just invite my friends over to play. And, you know, around the same time, I was kind of taking a break from social media also because I just realized how draining it is. Yeah. And, you know, I just really found it therapeutic getting together with friends, sitting around the table, you know, not looking at screens, talking, interacting together. So I would just have people over and like, oh, here's this cool new game I found. But at some point I realized I was like really itching to play more than... I could get my friends who weren't really gamers Mm -hmm. to play. Right. So then I started looking for board game friends, and uh, I found this meetup in downtown L.A. um, at Angel City Brewery. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, I went by myself, just showed up, uh, jumped into... Everybody was very welcoming, jumped into a game of Magic Maze, which I thought was cool and I still really adore. Um... But then here's the game changer. Uh, After Magic Maze, you know, people were kind of dispersing and going into groups to play the next game. Sure. And a spot opened up for Great Western Trail. And, you know, here I am, like, I've been playing King of Tokyo and Splendor. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. This looks like fun. (laughs) Thrown into the deep end. Oh, man. I just, it went completely over my head. But I just like stuck it out and kind of did the best um, sure. I could. And now actually two people who played that game with me, I'm friends with them now. My friends Nate and Drew, who you met. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, last night were actually, 
I sort of met them. So they're, they're witnesses to what went down with that Great Western Trail game. <laughs> Uh, allegedly it was a bad teach also, but I think well, it just would have gone over my head anyway. There, there is a learning curve and everyone has a different pace for it for sure. But, yeah. but to go from Mysterium to Great Western Trail, that's it a, was, that's it a, was crazy. <laughs> uh, but I went sure. home that night and I went home to Matt, my partner, and I was just buzzing with excitement and I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, I think I was excited that. Number one, I went to like a meetup by myself and mm-hmm. and then I played this game and I, I don't remember if it was that night or like the next day, but I bought it because I was like, I have to figure this out. Like there was something I loved about it and I just like really wanted to figure it out. So from there, I kind of discovered, discovered Strategicon, mm-hmm. went to my first Strategicon in May 2018. You might have seen me wandering around there like a lost puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I remember coming home that first Friday kind of feeling defeated, like, you know, I'm seeing people with their friends and oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah, it, it felt weird. Um, not weird, but like just, yeah, I felt like I was like kind of like left out or something. Well, when people are in a game, they're in a game, you yeah. know, and, and they, they don't mean to feel clicky. They're oh, just, yeah. they're just engaged. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. So, but the next day I go back and I, I signed up for, it was like some kind of like women in gaming talk. Okay. So I showed up at that. There were only like six of us in the audience. But off the bat, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I just felt a little more comfortable. Then I was wandering around. I went to the area where they uh, sell um, sell different games and accessories and everything. The, the swap meet or the, the vendor area? The vendor area. Got it. Got it. And I was wandering around there and I found a copy of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> New in shrink. <laughs> And I had already, um, I'm a fan of the show, so I had already been, like, hip to that game, and I'm just like, oh, I'm never going to get this. You know, people are selling it for $200, $300. Oh, yeah. I found a copy there in for t- $50. In, in 2018? In 2018. So somebody must have had this, you know, on a bottom shelf and just, like, brought it to the con. That is so rare and hard to find now. That's amazing. It really, like, lifted my spirits and... Um, and then I think it was the next day, Matt came with me. Mm-hmm. So I came back on Sunday. And by then I had like a different like kind of strut. And I had someone there with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and one other cool thing that happened there is like we went up to the game library. And we we're like, oh, I had heard about Marco Polo. I see Voyages of Marco Polo. Man, you started off good. You started Great Western Trail, Marco Polo, and Battlestar Galactica were three of your first games. Yeah. I mean, not a not a not a miss in the bunch. Holy cow. That's yeah. an amazing start. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and we we ended up like learning Marco Polo. We took it down to the open gaming area, set it up, and just started reading the rules. And um another couple were just like wandering around. They're like, oh, you know, can we play? And we're like, we don't know how to play it, but you're welcome to join. And so they were like, cool. So we ended up playing uh, Voyages of Marco Polo. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then it was the next Strategicon in September of 2018 where I met Jennifer. I was like, again, wandering around like a little stray puppy again. Um, <laughs> and Jennifer was playing Root with um, two people. And I was just like, oh, that looks neat. And she kind of saw me. And was like, come sit down, you know, and welcomed me over. So I just sat and watched them finish their game of Root. And that was the year that Root came out. Yeah. And <laughs> afterwards, we played Brass Birmingham. 
Oh. And that was the year that Bra- I think Brass just came out then, to Brass Birmingham. The, the new version. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly, yes. And yes. I was like, is, is this hard? And Jennifer's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jennifer's superpower is she's able to bring people in, right? Yeah. She's very good at that. She's totally so many people in, into the hobby. Um, but yeah, jumping to Brass... You know, Matt Robinson, his first game with in the in the hobby was mm-hmm. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, nice! But for his second game, I made the exact same mistake. I left him way too fast. Do you want to know what his second game was? What Indonesia? Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> Which was... I still haven't played. Oh, I really want. Oh. That's on my like twenty twenty one bucket list. So I great. need to play Indonesia. Done. You and I have a list of things that we have to play together now, yes. so that's okay. Oh, we'll, it's we'll get growing, to it. but we'll we'll get to it, especially we'll to now it. that everybody's vaccinated and we can play games in person. So you have chosen your moniker as the Omni Gamer, and the moment I heard it, I thought it was absolutely perfect for you. But would you would you explain why that is so uh, apt? Yeah, I mean, I think again, like I've gotten into gaming super heavy. You know, I think like most people who kind of get addicted once they get hooked on, um, you know, all these awesome, awesome board games. <laughs> and I find myself just excited to try all sorts of different types of games. Mm-hmm. Last year, again, thanks to Jennifer, I played my first 18xx game. I love 18xx ever since I've, I've played like a couple more times. And mm-hmm. I just I want to play more. Um, I got into wargaming, mm-hmm. um, so I'm still just, you know, in my infancy uh, stages of getting into war games. But uh, I, I don't just... know about that. I think you're, I think you're okay, pretty deep right. in already. My training <laughs> wheels are off. I definitely think so. <laughs> but yeah, I just like I, I get excited about um, kind of learning new games and different types of games, different mechanics and um, is there any genre that you don't really care for? Have you found that yet? I have not found a genre that I haven't liked. Like, you know, I like the quote unquote Ameritrash games. Uh, really? you, yeah. you, you know, I'm a don't big, do it. Don't say I'm it. a big fan of don't say it. <laughs> Twilight Imperium. Oh, no, <laughs> no. Ladies and gentlemen, Candace Harris is one of the, one of the kindest, nicest, smartest people I have met in gaming. She has almost impeccable taste, except for one glaring, glaring problem. She likes Twilight Imperium. I don't know what to do with that information. It is awesome. Oh my God. It is so awesome. It's such, it's such a unique experience. And I don't think I've ever played a game that has kind of evoked so many different emotions in one session. Uh, Yeah. So I'm a I'm a big. So does eight hours in the. I'm a new TI. (laughs) I'm a new TI four fan, but I I love it. Yeah. So I just I just really um, yeah I get into all different types of games, and you know I I appreciate. Them all, dude. That's awesome. That is that is great. And thanks. I should point out that this is round twelve, turn three, and uh, today we are going to be talking about the twenty twenty one release of Coffee Traders. Uh, this is by Rolf Sagel and Andre Spill. Do you think I'm pronouncing those correctly? Uh yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we'll go with that. Yeah, we'll go with that for right now. I don't now. think I could do it any better. <laughs> uh, uh, Coffee Traders is uh, a, a game shrouded in mystery. A lot of people are asking about it. They want to know about it. Well, we have played it. We've played it several times now, and we have opinions. So we're going to be getting into that. And 
as Candace was talking about, Candace is a war gamer, and uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of us in the, uh, the the game brain group are war gamers. I think Maddie and I are the the, the two guys that that dip our toes into war gaming the most. Maybe Jesse a little bit too, but but largely uh, so largely not so much. So Candace and I we're going to talk about war gaming because we haven't really had that as a, a topic yet, and then we're going to end with our top five. Gateway War Games, how to bring Eurogamers into the war game hobby. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Shall we get right to this week's game night? Let's do it. So we're still we're just entering the normal period, like we're getting together and having regular regular game nights again. Um, but until we're like fully immersed in that, let's just hear what games you've been playing lately. What are, what are some of the things you've been you've been dipping ooh, your toes into lately? Ooh, you know, obviously, Coffee Traders. Sure. Um, also, uh, recently, I played Churchill for the first time. It's a Mark Herman game. It mm. is. Not a war game. It's more of a uh, political game. Yeah, kind of, kind of like a war game adjacent, wouldn't you yeah. say? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um, it's based on like the historical conferences that took place um, during World War II between uh, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, mm. and it just has this really cool uh, negotiation aspect to it, where it's semi cooperative, but you know you're still but you're still to trying win. to win, yeah. yeah. It, it um it is a very revered design. People talk about it with uh, with uh, great reverence. I've only done a demo of it. I've never played a full full game yeah. of it. Well, we'll have to add that to the list. Hundred percent, hundred percent. The three person problem is an interesting thing, right? It, yeah. it, it, three player games are very very tough because, well, there there's an asymmetry there that that sure. tends to that tends to create some problems. Two against ones happen all the time and all that sort of stuff. Um, but is is it it seemed to me like in Churchill the sinner, the the fact that we all have to work together to some degree was the mitigating factor to prevent a lot of that from happening Would yeah you? no it's it's an excellent three player game um you know there are moments where you might be trying to work with one person one player and mm-hmm. then other times when they're working together and you need to work you know it, there's a there's a great dynamic to it um yeah i think it's i think it's super cool and um, you know uh, what is the Great Statesman series? I think this is Mark Herman's yeah. um, Great Statesman series. So there are two other games in the series, um, and one that's uh, in the oven. Sure. sure. Um, yeah. So I actually got to play uh, the newest release, which is uh, called Versailles 1919. Maddie and I both have copies. We have read the rules. You saw that my copy is yeah, already, yeah. already punched and ready to go and uh, dying, to, dying to get that to the table. I was just really excited to kind of get both of them to the table somehow in the same week because I've been like really itching to play. You know, Churchill I've had for probably like two years now uh-huh. um, because I picked it up from somebody at Strategicon at the virtual flea market. And I've been like really itching to play it, <laughs> haven't gotten a chance. And then Versailles, I probably got, you know, it came out last year. So yeah. I probably had it for at least six months or whenever it came out, I got it. Yeah, and we probably were, were you a P500 uh, a person at GMT to um, get it? I was not a P500, but I, I picked it up from somewhere else, like got maybe it. Miniature Market or something. Got it. Um, 
but it is so good. Versailles is um, a lot more accessible yeah. And you can, you know, so I would say if you wanted to dip your toes in either one of them, maybe start with Versailles. Um, yeah. It's also, you could play it, it's one to four players. So, you know, whereas uh, Churchill is one to three players. Yep. Um, but yeah, the nego- the mechanics are really simple, but it just creates the most interesting gameplay. And, you know, there's some negotiations in there. Oh. Uh, it, it's really fun. You're trying to like settle issues um, to, you know, get the uh, Versailles Treaty Signed, signed and sealed yeah. and delivered, which is a really interesting piece of history, actually. It's like I, I remember uh, I was a history buff uh, growing up, and the rote sentence everyone would say about the Versailles Treaty is, is that France demanded that Germany be punished, and they were punished mm-hmm. so hard that World War II was the result, right? The Weimar yeah. Republic and all that sort of stuff. Well, it turns out all the scholarship has come out in the last 20 or 30 years where people are like, no, 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 no. No, that's not true. No, look at this and look at this yeah, and look at this. Huh. And the the perspectives on uh, on that Versailles Treaty and the negotiation of it and who was in the right and who was in the wrong it just became so much more nuanced. So I'm uh, from a historical perspective, which is another one of those things about war games. We'll talk about it when we talk about yeah, war sure, games. Absolutely. But yeah, there is the, there is there is history there that uh, if that's if that rings your bell is such a value add for you. Yes. Yes. Um, and then, you know, so, so those were two highlights. Um, the other thing I have uh, kind of on a side table <laughs> at my place is a game of A Distant Plane, mm-hmm. which I am playing async uh, remotely with uh, Rodney from Watch It Played. <laughs> um, That's uh, fantastic. That is, that is part of... Um, the coin series. The coin series. Yeah, GMT's yeah. coin series. And, uh, you know, it's working surprisingly well we're both playing two factions and, um, you know, we're using uh, WhatsApp. Okay. Is that what it's called? Yeah, 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 WhatsApp to, and we're sending videos of our turns to each other. So, you oh, know, um, Rodney's control, like built the deck, uh, the event card deck. And then like, he'll tell me like, okay, here are the event cards. And then when it's my turn, I take a video and say, okay, I'm going to move my pieces here. And, you know, really? We, yeah. It's, it's really, it's really great. And I just love walking by and seeing it and thinking about like what I'm going to do next. Yeah, that's the thing about coin. We'll talk about this and yeah. we'll talk about coin games sure. later later too. But it, it is one of those things. It, it's a very unique, very interesting system that I think has a lot of Euro game, gamer accessibility because it, it's a lot of the same decision points, a lot mm-hmm, of the same mm-hmm. tough choices. What have you been playing, Tom? Um, well, let's see. Uh, last week I played Pipeline and you were very jealous. because I am jealous. Played. I have not played Pipeline <laughs> yet. Um, yeah. It turns out that uh, 2019, I said my top three games were uh, Barrage was number one, uh, Crystal Palace was number two, and Pipeline was number three. I have wanted over this this cold, cold year of ours, I have wanted to play Pipeline more than the other two. That's the thing that I wanted to play the most. And getting back to the table and playing it again, I'm like, oh, I really do love this game. That's cool. It is such a it, it is such an interesting Ryan Courtney did such a great job of creating this spatial puzzle as a means to maximize an economic puzzle. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant combination of of two elements. So. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to uh, try Pipeline, and I, I love that feeling too when you play a game and you're like, oh, I really like this, and then you play it more and more, and you just like. Really start to love it. That's awesome. Totally, totally. Uh, I played Fam again. I bought my copy of Fam. Uh, last week's review, they were uh, they were a little eh, 
<laughs> we like it. We like it better each time we play it, but we're not really sure we are going to want to play a lot of it. Uh, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I love this game. <laughs> I really love this game. This is a, this is. I, I don't just go out and buy a game, and especially after having played it several times with other people's copies, if I don't think this is a keeper. For me, fame is a keeper. I really, really like that game. It it scratches the old school board gaming itch, you know, the early Euro game itch in a really great way for me. So I, I, I love it. I also think it's particularly good for newer gamers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really dig it too. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> the first time I played it, I took the board out and I love like the vintage wash of the board. I yep. love... Um, I've only played uh, half a game of Power Grid before, so I'm not like very well versed in Power Grid. But I, I love the way the um, the deck construction and the deck building kind of works, and the way the cards come out into the market. The dynamic market, yeah, based on numbers, and it, so. it just each game just kind of can play out differently depending on you know which cards you end up picking up. And I love that you can kind of synergize different cards and work, work some combos in. So. Uh, I like it a lot, but I also I don't know that it's like going to be something that I'm gonna run to pick first. Uh, yeah, and I respect that. When, when they you know listen, they, they had a very good review last week. I thought they made some really good points. Just for me, I gotta say, it's just one of these games that maybe as a personal choice for me, it just sings in a way that it, it may not quite sing for other people. But yeah. I'm a convincing person. I'll get people to play. <laughs> I'll make it happen. I'm, I'd always be down to play that. So. Speaking of convincing, we also had a game of uh, Avalon that went on <laughs> last night. Before that, um, we had, I think we had 11 or 12 people here uh, for game night last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the early crowd, the uh, we had eight people eight. For, uh, for Avalon. Uh, very rousing Avalon game. Now you're relatively new to our our Avalon Slugfest. Oh my goodness! What did you it, think? It is something else. That was, <laughs> so that was the second time I played Avalon <laughs> with this group, and <laughs> and I probably only played Avalon you know five or six times. Okay. You know I haven't played it nearly as much as everybody, but it is always such a memorable experience <laughs> playing with you guys. You get so deep with it, and everybody's metas and. <laughs> I I'm just constantly entertained. <laughs> constantly entertained. It's it's a blast. You were on the winning side. Yeah, you, of course. With of with, course. Are you with me. <laughs> I didn't though know though. I didn't, didn't know. Me. You seem sketch. I I do seem sketch. That's the problem. The problem is I seem sketch and like I'm I'm trying to be like, "No, I'm doing the greatest good. I am helping yeah. us in the best way possible. Just yeah. trust me for a second and you did not." You, there were, there were there were moments where I thought I trusted you. Good, good. Well, that's that's the great thing about the game when the game plays really well, um, and it played really well last night. That was that was a good good yes, group. Yes. The uh, the the first mission was successful. The second mission was a failure. Mm-hmm. The third mission was successful, but we weren't sure where we were. Right. Um, and uh, as always, so the good guys won, and then the bad guys get to guess who Merlin is. Out of the five good guys, totally ruled out. Immediately ruled out two of us. Right, right. You and Scott were ru- mm-hmm. were ruled out. <laughs> they said for sure I was Percival. I think is what they ended up saying. I think uh, so. Yeah, Percival, yeah. Per- he knows. He he said too much. He knows too much. But he's he. But he wasn't. That means he probably wasn't Merlin. Um, and I think they ended up picking Paul as uh, as Merlin. Yep. Turns out the first person they ruled out, Scott, 
was the <laughs> fantastic Merlin. <laughs> I was it. I was not Percival. They were they were way off, and uh, <laughs> a huge victory. Huge yeah, victory, it so. was a blast. And that was the Avalon report of the day. <laughs> and we had a great game. Uh, I think people played uh, Teach You. People played, uh, yeah, Dimitri finally got his Tichu game in. He was super excited about it. <laughs> uh, there was a game of Coimbra uh, that went on, a game of Gaia Project, and, of course, Coffee Traders. Um, what say we jump into the news, because we are racing through the hour. Good evening, Mr. Mr. North of South America, and all the skips and purposes. See, let's go to press. Um, uh, if you have been living in a barn, you might not know that there is a Board game on Kickstarter that has reached currently $3.5 million worth of backers. Woo! Huge! Huge! <laughs> uh, it, you know, listen, it's based on IP. The Witcher Old World is a, uh, is a game with some of the more beautiful miniatures that I've ever seen. Uh, by the time you hear this, it should have about 10 days left. Candice, you've taken a look at this. What do you think? What What are your impressions of Witcher the Old World? I mean, it, it seems cool. I'm not really uh, super familiar with the IP. Mm. Um, Matt played the video game, and it looked awesome <laughs> and uh, very cool. And he also watched the show. I haven't seen the show yet. I heard it's pretty good. Um, but yeah, it, lo- it looks pretty good. It is, yeah. It, it is a uh, competitive adventure board game. Uh, two to five players. There's a big map. There's uh, quests, encounters. Um, you play one of five different kinds of witchers. And witchers, for anybody that doesn't know, I think most people listening to this podcast probably know what a witcher is. Um, but they're kind of like monster hunters, I guess, is a way you could uh, could think it. They're, they're guardians. Um, and uh, there are five different types of witchers. And so each one of the five, the characters that you could play in the game, uh, comes with a different deck. One of the cool things about it is it appears to have some very decent deck construction where you're going to be choosing a hand of cards that you're going to be able to use through the game that are going to be essentially your superpowers to uh, to work your way through missions. So there's a lot of card synergy. I, I really like when it's not just dice chucking, sure. when it's not just stats, It's a, it's there's a, a good mechanism to it. Uh, I, I kind of like that. Now, you know, I don't like... Games with tons of miniatures, right? Like um, oh. Twilight Imperium, for instance. Games with, <laughs> you know, tons of ships and little Death Stars and all that sort of stuff. So, so in general, I would say that uh, that I am not your audience for this game. Um, but I, the production value could not look better um, because yeah, it looks it's great. yeah because it made so much money. All the stretch goals seem to have been hit. I mean. This this Kickstarter page just goes on and on and on about how, how much stuff that uh, is going to come in the box. Um, it's a little, you know, it, it's it's not cheap. Let's just say <laughs> that. Um, but you can get the standard box without all the special stuff for uh, seventy euros, I guess. Uh, the deluxe box is one twenty five, and uh, yeah. So I don't think that's crazy. Yeah, not for what you're getting. Correct. Yeah, exactly right. Um, next up, we have uh, just a little tidbit of news. We gave a pretty good review to Lost Ruins of Arnak. Turns out they've released a free solo campaign. Search for Prof- Professor Coutil. Coutil? Coutil, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, I-, I love when board game makers put out free content. You know, and and try to brand extend themselves a little bit and all that sort of thing. I think it's a, I really appreciate, even if it's just something small, 
Um, you know, sometimes they'll do convention demos and then they'll release the convention demo. Yeah, it's uh, nice. To the public. Especially if it's a game you enjoy, you know. Yeah, have you played Lost Ruins? I have played it once and um I kind of walked away from it uh feeling like eh, like it was okay. Like I I would play it again. Um I didn't fall in love with it like a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Uh I think it was because around the time I was playing a lot of Dune Imperium and you know it has this same deck building and yes. worker placement and I just like there were so many moments of like tense moments in Dune Imperium. Yeah. I I love the like the victory point system, the combat. So I came into Lost Ruins of Arnak and I'm like, "Oh, this is cool. Like <laughs> I like the components, but the the game itself didn't really um wow me." Um yeah. that being said, I do want to revisit it because I do know like a ton of people who think it's excellent. So I'm like, you know, maybe it was just a kind of a a weird game. Um, it's weird first experience with it. Sure, it's like a more it's a more casual game than Dune Imperium, I would mm-hmm. say. Right, mm-hmm. you know, D- Dune Imperium's a little on the heavier side, the meteor yeah. side, and since it uses a lot of the same mechanisms, you know, it, it's it's easy to play them side by side and to choose one. And to yeah. ju- you kind of have to, right, in right. some way. Uh, yeah, just it did. It didn't get me as excited, nearly as excited as my games of Dune Imperium. Uh, one thing I did love about it, though, was uh, the way the card market works. You have those like two different types of cards Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't remember if it's like, you know, one type starts with two cards in the market and the other is five and then you adjust a slider. So the next round, you know, the left side has three cards and the right side has four. And I thought that was kind of cool. That's a really smart mechanism. right? I I, I could see that being implemented in a lot of even really heavy games in in order for people to manipulate uh, the the flow of the markets, as it were. I think that's a really good idea, too. Yeah. Uh, so if you are a fan of uh, the Ruins of Arnak, uh, check it out. It's a, it's free. It's free. It's solo. Definitely take a peek. Uh, it seems to me like last year with everybody having the need for solo experiences, that yeah. only now when we're starting to leave the solo... I mean, listen, there are parts of the world that are going to be in solo experiences for quite <laughs> right, some time. Right, right. Um, so I'd like, you know, I wish these things were here six months ago, but I'm glad that they're they're here, right. period, right? I yeah, think that's a good thing. totally. Totally agree. Uh, next up, we got an interesting tweet from Far Off Games that uh, Aridia, I'm going to call it Aridia, A-R-Y-D-I-A, an open-world campaign-based cooperative fantasy game for one of four players, is going to be hitting Kickstarter on August the 3rd. Why is this of interest to anyone? Well, the designer is Cody Miller. Mm-hmm. Cody Miller did a very interesting game called Shia Legends of a Drift System. I was wondering how you were going to pronounce it. Because I, I see, hear people say Zaya. I, I think it's Shia. Shia, Shia, okay. I think it's Shia. I, I, heard from, I heard from somebody that said that they demoed it with Cody and he called it Shia. But Okay. Right. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Okay, cool. But that's what I. That's what I heard. I actually picked up Shia um, about three months ago. Really? Yeah, and I think it was uh, Rob Oren from uh, Rob's Tabletop World, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. channel, um, who's also you know a member of the BGG team mm-hmm, that, I, yeah. that I met last year for the first time and just really connected with because you know he likes a lot of war games and and. Uh, too many bones and like we we have a lot of like uh, similar interests in the in the gaming realm. But uh, 
he had a video of I think his favorite uh, expansions for games or something like top five or top ten, and uh, one of the expansions for Shia was on his list, and you know it's the one that allows you embers of something shards. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah where yeah, yeah, where yeah. you it has a solo where you can play solo, and he was just saying like the solo mode's fantastic. And that kind of is what initially sold me on like, ooh, I want to check this out. And I also liked it because it's kind of like a uh, space like sandbox game. Yes. Um, that, you know, doesn't take forever to play. Uh, seems like it has some really interesting mechanics. So um, and it just seems like from from friends who have played it, um, I just hear it's it's fun. So, yeah, um, but I haven't gotten it to the table yet. I have played Shia a couple times, and it's the it's probably the game that has the biggest disparity between me wanting to love it and me not being able to quite love it. It's like it, <laughs> I want my my in my heart of hearts, I want to play a an open world sandbox space adventure mm-hmm. that feels like Firefly and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what she is. That's exactly what it is. But when I play it, it just feels like the decisions I'm making are less important than the randomness of the game. And have you played with the expansion? No, I have not. Okay. Um, so, I, I, but I've heard that it helps, but I've heard it's not. Okay. Well, yeah, um, I don't know. Cause I haven't played it yet, but I did hear that something that that first expansion that I was talking about, the embers one um, yeah. adds to it uh, kind of quote unquote fixes some things that people had issues with in the uh, with just the base game. I will be checking my email box for for the invite, and <laughs> I will be there. Okay, I w- cool. I will play Shia with you. Absolutely, no question about it. It is it is a visionary design. Let's just say that. Yeah. It is big. It tries to do a whole lot of things, and really come really accomplishes most of the things it sets out to do. It's just the crusty. I, I must have meaningful decisions strategy gamer in me yeah, that yeah. is that is keeping my my child's <laughs> heart from having fun gotcha. the, having the fun that I should be having in it um but yeah uh, Cody definitely earned my respect to a huge degree so any game that he comes out with I want to check out I want to see what it yeah, is Yeah Iridia looks cool Yeah 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 it, it you know semi semi cooperative it it seems like it's going to scratch a lot of the same itches and you know, this is this is years later. Let's see. Let's see what he, what what new bags of tricks he has. Sure. It should be it should be cool to to check that out. Um, then there was a review on Board Game Geek by some some newcomer named Candace some Harris. Clown. Yeah, <laughs> Candace Harris. I'm not sure. She's been she's been writing a lot of stuff. I've been agreeing with a lot of it, but then she goes talking about Paris. <laughs> Kramer and Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling. Don't know who those guys are. Never heard of them. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, Wolfgang Kramer is one of my favorite designers, uh, you know, going all the way back to El Grande, uh, Kramer and Kiesling together did the Tikal Mexica, uh, Mexica series, which are kind of amazing. I, played it. I have to call back here. I also haven't played El Grande, which I, I do own. Oh, like the, I own the big box version yeah, of it. Yeah. And... I have the big box. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's probably still in my top 20 games, El Grande. That's how good it is. It really is just such, such boiled down to the essence of what, uh, a great area control game should be, that's, and it is. That's exactly what I what hear. Is. That's what I, you know, I always hear yeah. that about it, and that you know, the fact that it is an older game, but it's still so relevant and 
Just oh. really good. And with the big box, you get the the first expansion is crazy. It turn you instead of having this deck of like ten cards and you're choosing which mm-hmm. one to use in a given round, you have a deck of a hundred cards, and from that you're going to choose the specific 10 or 12 or whatever that you're going to play with for the entire game. Cool. So you're choosing your powers. You're choosing the abilities that are going to come out. It's insane. It, how, how do you choose it? Like, is it a draft? Or no, like- you literally, each person has the identical, has a hundred identical oh, wow. cards okay. or whatever. And they're going through. And you through just set up your own deck. Cho- that's Choosing that's so which cool. 12. And my 12, I think, are fantastic until I see what your 12 are. And then I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, they, okay. they they zigged when I zagged, and they created a really interesting situation. It's it's crazy good. Um, and Kiesling, of course, has has had quite a career of his own as well, doing Azul, and I mean, he's had some huge successes yeah. recently. Um, tell me about tell me about Paris because uh, I've seen the map. I've seen it. You haven't played Paris. I have not played Paris. I know oh my a lot of people Jennifer loves it. I know Jennifer yeah. loves it. I just haven't ever gotten it to a table yet. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really cool you know area. Ma- mainly, mainly, wow, mainly an area majority game. Okay, uh, but when you are you're placing these keys out on different buildings, and it's one of those games where you have like you, the in, the rules are very simple. Mm-hmm. Like on your turn, you're gonna put a building out on the board, and then you're gonna take an action. Right. But then it's like <laughs> the decisions that come that stem from taking that action will just like burn your brain a little bit sometimes. I love it. Um, yeah. And it's like if you place keys on lower level buildings, mm-hmm. um, you can work your way around this bonus tile track. And there's all it's, it's one okay, of those yep. tracks where you can move as far forward as you want. But then you can never go backwards. Right, right. So, so it's like if you want to jump ahead and snag something before everybody else, then you're like leaving other goodies behind. And every bonus tile is really, really good. Gotcha. So uh, similar to the mechanism in um, Francis Drake and Lignum, right? Where- Which I haven't played either of them. Add <laughs> <laughs> well, them to the list. <laughs> you saw them both in there, but yeah, it, th- that's the the equipping phase in both of those games. Okay. The first half of each round is you choosing what space ahead of you you're going to go to and what what reward you're going to take from there. Right. Okay. Uh, so the slow players can get a whole can hoover up a whole bunch of rewards, but the big ones, the the, the most important ones, are going to be gone. Other people are going to be leaping ahead to make sure yeah. they secure gotcha. the most important ones for them, but then they're leaving a lot of things behind. So mm. great, mm. T- great tough decision space. I love, yeah. that. I love the mechanism. Yeah, and it, I mean it's really cool too because like then in Paris it's like well you want to put your keys out on higher value buildings because you're going to get more um, more points towards the air majority scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also cool because after you place uh, after four keys are placed in any of these, uh, I think it's six different districts. Yep. This big circular board that's gorgeous. Um, you get to place a victory point scoring tile in one of the districts. So you oh. so the players are determining how the different districts score. Interesting. So you're you're working toward creating a situation where the the places you've placed are are going to be valued differently. Yes. Oh wow. Yes. Yeah. So so if I'm if I'm doing really well in a district, I'm going to want to put the highest scoring tile out. 
And it's like, it's a tiered scoring thing where like whoever has the most influence gains sure. the most points. And then, a, you know, second most yada, yada, yada. It's half of that and half of that. Still. Yeah. And then you have these like landmarks that you can build also um, into the districts. And uh, there's a new expansion for Paris. So Paris came out last year. Mm-hmm. And there's a new expansion. I think that's still on Kickstarter. Um, they're kickstarting a deluxe version of it that you need the deluxe version of the base game for. But eventually it'll be available in retail. Gotcha. And it adds more bonus tiles. Um, so there's there's so much variety wow. <laughs> with the with the different bonus tiles. And they add, uh, I, I believe, 11 more. And But the cooler thing the expansion adds is uh, new player powers. You get these strategy tiles. So everybody gets a strategy tile randomly at the beginning of the game, but there's something you can do throughout the game to swap it out. And these strategy um, tiles give you a unique ability. So Interesting, it, but, but they're swappable. Yes, but they're swappable. Oh, uh, and if know, I swap mine out, then it's available for somebody else to then go swap theirs and get mine. That is a mechanic that they did in a game called Maharaja oh. uh, a number of years ago, which is one of my one of my hidden gems of theirs. I, I have it back there. Uh, not a lot of people. I think they were doing a reprint of that. Actually, they're they're going to shift it a little bit because there were a couple rules that okay. didn't really work. Kind of broke the game a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's that's a mechanic that they use quite well in Maharaja. I really liked it. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, it's a fun game. Um, I think sometimes it can run a little longer than that hour and a half that the box says. But, sure. Um, but yeah, if you like, you know, area majority games with some twists, um, and it's got a gorgeous board, um, it's it's really fun. Dude, awesome. Awesome. Um, and in interesting news, David Turksey um, wrote a very interesting note, a statement on the prison theme of uh, his upcoming game or what was going to be his upcoming game. Um, what, what, what do they call it? It's, it's, One of the million uh, <laughs> upcoming games yes, from David Turksey. <laughs> yeah, he Busy. really is. He Busy really man. is. Uh, prison Architect Cardboard County Penitentiary. Now, this is a video game, right? A very fairly popular video game called Prison Architect. Never heard of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never it, heard of it. It's, yeah. a, it's a real thing. It's been out there. And it wasn't... Um, I, listen, I don't know video games that well myself, mm-hmm. but I will say that to my knowledge, it was not one of these... You know, sometimes games in the video game space are designed to poke the eyes of cer- of a certain percentage of a population or something like that. I don't believe that's what this was. I think okay. this was I think this was very much like uh you're just trying to you, you have these uh AI things that are trying to get out and you have to build a better mouse trap to catch them, right? It's like a, you know, if you did the theme, you know, catch all the mice, catch all the termites <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh that's what it was supposed to be. It it wasn't supposed to be commentary, it wasn't supposed to be any of that sort of stuff. But of course, Times have times have changed, Change, and yep. thankfully, we're starting to realize no, there is a there is a cancer and a crisis in our society in terms of the the percentage of our population that is that is imprisoned, the reasons for that, and and the situation. And thankfully, um, they they got enough people telling them that hey, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, time to rethink this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what did you think of the statement? Yeah, I mean, I thought that I thought the statement was excellent. Um, I I can't believe 
you know, I guess it makes sense to take a video game and, you know, turn it into a board game. But yeah, I think people just need to be a little more aware when it comes to choosing themes for board games because, you know, there is impact to a lot of different people and, you know, um, but I think they handled it well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's like, oh, you're gamifying human suffering. Why Why on earth would you, would you right. do that? But I have to admit, I, I myself, when I, when I used to see the, the, the video game, I never thought anything. I didn't think anything about it. Right. And now it's all I can think. Is, right. It's like, oh, my God, why the Times hell are we? Times have changed. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's good. I'm glad, that, I'm glad that they did that. Um, they did not say that the game is not being published. They okay. said that they, they took their names off. They took their names off. Uh, they have not said the game is being published either. Right. They're saying that 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 is not a decision that they can make, which mm-hmm. is probably absolutely true, right? Mm-hmm. They they can pull their name off of it. They can say, "Do not advertise with us." They also said that they will accept no royalties from it. They will accept no uh, future money uh, uh, from the project. And uh, good on you, David Turksey. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Let us get to our review. We're going to be talking about Coffee Traders today. It is a 2021 release. The designers are Rolf Sagel and Andre Spill. Hopefully, I have said those correctly twice and not hurt these people. The artists are John Rabu and Don von Paradon, I'm going to say. And the publisher is the amazing Capstone Games, probably our favorite publisher here at the podcast. Candace, will you tell us about Coffee Traders? What is this thing? Sure. I'll, I'll tell you about Coffee Traders, but first I have to mention that neither one of us have coffee right now. And no, I don't, <laughs> it feels I don't like we ever should. drink coffee. <laughs> I am not a coffee drinker either. It's, it's, it's horrible <laughs> to, to not play this with Alfred. Alfred, who we went through uh, Kyoto and uh, Osaka, and everywhere we went, he said, okay, we got to go three blocks this way and then down this alley and into this stairwell and into this underground, and there is this amazing artisanal coffee roaster down there. That get you know they get, that gets the, yeah they get they get their beans from the side of Machu Picchu and then they it, right it, there's oh my goodness he'll have to play coffee traders yeah exactly <laughs> no he's way he's way into coffee and he knows it he knows it like a true connoisseur right he's really really into it okay well coffee traders basically each player represents a coffee trading company from Antwerp Belgium and it takes it's set in the seventies. Um, players are going to be adding coffee plantations and constructing buildings in these five different cooperatives. And then you're going to send workers to plantations, harvest coffee, and then fulfill contracts and sell coffee to different coffee bars and restaurants uh, around the world. Uh, the main part of the game board for coffee traders, it is a wide, um, I think it's a really beautiful, very busy looking board, but um, it has really good graphic design, I think. Yeah. Um but the central, the core central area has these five different coffee cooperatives, you know, representing Colombia, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Brazil, and Guatemala. And they're each represented with uh, different uh, colors. And then there's also an icon, a shape that goes along with it. So, you, you know, in case in colorblind Color issues. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have, you have uh, an Arabica track. You know, Arabica is a type of coffee bean. I think. Um, yeah. You're asking the wrong person. <laughs> or coffee so. plant. But um, you have an Arabica track, which is kind of like track similar to something like in Gaia Project or like Teotihuacan. 
Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I would say more Teotihuacan or Terra Mystica in the sense that the track itself is, uh, no, I guess, no, I guess you're right. Because it does it's, give you things. Yeah, it's not oh yeah, just, yeah. It, it but, gives but you benefits not, as you as you advance up um, each track. But unlike Gaia Project, um, all the tracks are the same. Yes, yeah. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah, every track is the same, even though there's a different track for each of the five cooperatives. Yeah, there are victory points on it, but there are other things you can get on there as well. That's yeah, um, so there are different ways in the game that you can kind of uh, bump up these tracks. And uh, the game is played over three rounds, which are called periods, uh, you know, 1970, the second period is 1975, then there's 1980. Disco and- will never die. <laughs> And then in each of these periods or rounds, um, you're going to perform, you're going to, we're going to go through six different phases. Um, There, each player gets a player board, which it's one of the coolest player boards um, I've seen in a while because it just, it like just guides you through the whole process. And like, once you're familiar with the iconography, Mm -hmm. um, everything is there that you need to just kind of follow along. I, I, I'm going to, Use some hyperbole here. It may be my favorite player board ever. It, mm. it really is. It, it's the kind of player board that I look at it, and I want so many other games to have a player board like this. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, it's it's really well done, and um, I think like when you're kind of setting up coffee traders, there's um, you know, it's it's kind of a beast of a game. I mean, there are a lot of like components, yep. lots of like really nice components, but the player board itself. Kind of again, like once you've played a game and you know what the different pieces are, it's all on the board for you. You like mm-hmm. to to set it up. You barely need to refer to uh, the rule books. Um, so in the six phases, what are we doing? Um, well, the first phase um, is called the work phase, and that's where players are going to kind of perform different uh, actions in the cooperatives. Um, you can you can add plantations to different cooperatives. You can then uh, send workers to um, you basically put a worker on top of a cooperative um, or I'm sorry, on top of a plantation so that, you know, eventually that plantation will generate coffee. Um, You can also breed donkeys. Um, Donkeys are a resource that you will need to kind of uh, connect your plantations, your lower level, your lower valued uh, plantations to higher ones. I was so traumatized by my donkey shortage in the first game that I went way overboard. <laughs> you went heavy with donkeys. Heavy you know, donkey shortage. You had like strategy. a gang of donkeys. Yeah. To say workers placing out on the board is a little bit of a misnomer, though, because really the donkey, I mean, sorry, workers as an, a worker placement action is really a super small and minor action that happens on your own personal board, placing yep. workers out onto the map, it, it does something very different and isn't really a worker placement action, right? Right, right. yeah. It's not a, not a worker placement. Yeah, each of the, each of the six cooperatives, so um, they'll have this little circle um, that at the beginning of the game is set up with these six workers that are kind of, you know, they just belong to the, uh, you know, they're shared yeah. Shared workers, no none the of the players. Yeah. This is the fair locals. trade coffee. We're about we're about exactly. uplifting the communities. Exactly. The other thing you'll find in the each of the different cooperatives are spaces for you to put your plantations. And there are like three there are three rows. Um the first row you can only put your your level one quality plantations out on. Yep. The second row you could put one or two quality um 
plantations. And then on the third row, which only has uh, three spaces, you could put either quality two or quality three plantations. But you have to kind of build a connection from your your level one uh, plantation on the first row with donkeys yes, um, to then gradually um, get, get your higher quality value uh, plantations out on the board. And really um, the heart of the game is kind of this area, area majority scoring of these five different cooperatives. So you're going to want to get your plantations out and, have more quality, uh, higher quality score value in each of the plantations because at the end of the game, whoever whoever has the most gets sixteen points. I think it's yeah. eight points for second and maybe four, four points. Yeah, yeah, four points for third for this area majority scoring of each of the cooperatives. So that's like one of the main things you're going to be doing is putting out these plantations into the different cooperatives. Yeah, sort of. I, I would say that probably. 40 points of your score, if you do fairly well, will come from worker placement. Uh, yes. I'm mean, sorry, area control yeah. part of the game. Uh, but scores are often over 100. So even though They're it's a major little, component, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a little bit of point salad here. Not in a negative way, really. But there's a, there, I said it reminds me of Feld a little bit. In totally. Terms of, there's a lot of scoring that goes on. You have a score sheet. You need a pen at the end. And we're, we're, we have to subtotal two different areas because there's a <laughs> lot of things we're scoring in the game. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of different ways to get victory points. And you can kind of like choose whatever strategy, uh, you you know, choose your own adventure a little bit. Um, you know, some games you might want to just hit the, the area majority really hard. Other times you might want to hit the tracks hard mm-hmm. and, you know, or fulfill contracts because there are also milestones. So each game you're going to have three milestones and there, are, you know, you have like, I think in the game it comes with three A milestones, three B and three C, and you're going to randomly place one each, um, each game. And Which I, looked like it changed changed our game yeah, considerably, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's like there, you know, I think the whatever milestones end up out there really can change you know the the flow of the game and what players are are doing. Yeah, I I think almost all of the milestones make sense. And what I mean by that is if you achieve that milestone you can also score points a lot of other ways based on the things you did yeah. to achieve that milestone. So aiming for that milestone, like trying to be the first to there, it's basically 10 bonus points for things you kind of want to do anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? In the, in the last game we played, there was one that said, uh, do you have two regions in which you have eight points worth of infrastructure built up in that region? Yeah. Uh, that's what you want. Because yeah. that's going to give that's you gonna the... That's going to give you the area majority scoring. And then you also, if you do it first, you know... Yeah. Faster than your opponents. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I definitely noticed um, the milestones can really change up the flow of the game and, and, and what players are doing. I think in both of the games that we played together, I, I was the first one to a milestone both times. I'm definitely, yeah. Yeah. You're a milestone the, guy. The Euro, it's the Euro game thing. <laughs> it's like, oh, what's the what's the special conditions of this game? Right. Right. Do, do that. Do only that. <laughs> well, yeah. So you, you'll, we'll go through these different phases where you're going to like put out these um, coffee plantations on the board. Um, And then um, what Tom was kind of talking about when I say you're going to send workers Mm -hmm. to the plantations, um, there are six workers that are placed in the plantations um, or each of the cooperatives at the beginning of the game. And there's an action you can take to uh, distribute some of those workers onto 
one of each player's plantations that are out in a cooperative. Which here, here we come to the cooperative aspect. Yes, of the there are game. some cooperative aspects to this game, which is cool. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I, essentially, essentially, when you uh, do something that helps somebody else, you get a bonus for that. You get mm-hmm. a benefit, and sometimes those benefits are things that are quite hard to come by. Moving up the Arabica track is—that's is, it. Yeah, we want to do that a lot. Yes, and yes. if you are selfish, there are relatively few chances to do that. Yeah, yeah, and and the Arabica tracks are cool because i mean even though each track is identical if you choose to kind of hit a couple tracks really hard and you're able to get up to the top um there's like a benefit you can get by being the first on one of the spaces and also whoever gets to the very top of the track locks in an extra four points and nobody can get those four points but if you diversify and try to you know gradually bump up on all the tracks you also can get a couple um, special benefits and end game points. And victory points as well. Yeah. 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 It's really well balanced. Uh, maximizing a track is going to be worth 10 points at the end of the game. Um, getting to level four on all the tracks is also another 10 points at the end right, of the game. Right, right. So it it's not a game that throws you into specialization and it doesn't throw you into generalization. It says you make up your mind. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the more games I play and the more I understand the game, um, even after just like playing one game, I really think about, I almost center what I'm doing around bumping up the tracks and like what I'm going to try to do. Because one of the things you can get, um, if you're able to, again, get to that four space on all the tracks. Yeah. You're going to get a truck. Oh, forget those donkeys. You got a truck now. You're going to get a truck. Yeah. Oh, and a truck is, first of all, worth points in and of itself. But a truck also gets you to those sweet, sweet spots at the very top of the board, the two, three spots in those regions that are really valuable for a bunch of different reasons. And it's way easier than having a ton of donkeys. It really is. Really is, um, you know what? I'm going to take the the uh, uh, step three. Step two is a yeah. super simple worker step, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, step three is the trading step. So we also have these mm-hmm. traders. We start off with I think three traders that are available to us, and in turn order, we are going to be able to put them on the board to do basically one of two things. Thing number one is you can build. Auxiliary buildings, let's call them, mm-hmm. in, e- in each region, right? In each region, most of the spaces are for plantations, but there are other spaces that can hold these dr- uh, washing and drying stations, you know, to make the beans better. Yeah. That's one of the things. There are trading posts that are going to allow you to get beans, you know, to get more coffee, to, to get more the coffee harvest, yeah. during the harvest. Um, and then there are uh, farm spaces, so you could put farmhouses uh, out there, and even a hospital, which is. Uh, and each <laughs> one of those buildings is worth one point toward your area control, except for the hospital, which is worth two, but it's hard to get to. It's, it's kind of at the end of the building track of the things you can build, and you have to build in a certain order. But and not only yes. are the buildings worth uh, one quality point towards like the area control scoring, but some of the places where you can place the buildings will help you 
bump on the Arabica tracks. There are all these little double arrow spaces. And whenever you see them, after you play the game it's once, good. you're like, double arrow, double arrow. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah that's what I good. want. <laughs> you become, yeah, it, it really is one of those things like, oh, I want to build this, but I need to get a treat first. So yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the space. That space gives me a treat. That other space doesn't give me a treat. I don't want that. I don't want to go there. Um, but then the other thing that the workers do, uh, the, the traders do, is you can put them in a region. You pay two coins to yeah. do it. Yep. Yeah, into into Antwerp. And so uh, if, for instance, I'm going to put my trader into an- the Antwerp box in Guatemala, I pay two coins to do that. And what that means is I am trading the coffee that is generated in Guatemala. You're the first trader, Tom. That's right. <laughs> and what that means is if Guatemala had five uh, plantations there, right, mm-hmm. each plantation is going to generate two coffee. If nobody else goes there, I am going to get the maximum amount of coffee that I can get, which is five coffee plus being the first person there, I get a one coffee bonus at the beginning of the round. Plus, if I had any trading posts, I get that coffee as well. Mm -hmm. So let's suppose I get seven points because I had one trading post. I had the first guy there and no one else went there. But generally, that's not what happens. That is not what happens. People follow, right? This is this is the cooperative part of the game. After I go there, everyone else can go there as well by placing one of their workers out there. And they do not have to pay two bucks. That's yeah. right. They do not have to pay two bucks. Uh, the game is designed so that everyone cannot go to a single space. There's always one person is going to be left behind. But guess what? They get a coin as, Consolation prize. as a little reward. And the order in which this coffee is given out is first it goes to the trading houses. Mm-hmm. So trading house, each trading house gets one coffee. The first person there gets one coffee for being the first person there. And then they get another one. And then in order, everybody gets one coffee. Everybody gets one coffee until we're out of the supply. I have to tell you, it's there is something incredibly soothing and satisfying about seeing that coffee divvied up oh, by yeah. everybody, oh, yeah. right? And yeah, and you kind of jump to the harvest phase of when we're, you know, we go through each cooperative. Oh, sure, and yes, then, yeah, yes, that's yes. that's phase four, and we go through each cooperative and we figure out how much coffee is being generated. And Tom goes through, I love it, and he'll point, and you'll just be sitting there like it's like a lottery <laughs> and uh, adjusting your levels of the different types of coffee he's distributing. Like, oh, one, two, three. And he's pointing at your your, your colored uh, meeple, your trader that's out there. And it just really, yeah, it's it's really fun um, to watch that that coffee get divvied out. It feels like it feels like you pulled the handle on a on a, <laughs> a, a slot machine yeah. and it's paying out. It's ding, 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 yep, ding, ding, yep. ding, ding. So yeah, so let's get to the the, the harvest phase. Yeah, we uh, just well, describe what the harvest phase kind of is, but well, even before that, sure. the other thing on the trader and contractor phase is you can also piggyback other players' actions if they choose to build. Sure. So in the trader and contractor phase, you could either place one of your traders out into a cooperative in the Antwerp uh, trading area, um, as Tom just described, but you could also build a building. And you have warehouses, which actually get built on your player board in your coffee warehouse. Um, Or you have those other, um, you know, ancillary buildings that will get uh, placed out onto a different cooperative. So if I choose to build a, let's say, a trading house in Ethiopia... And I'm it's my, I'm the active player. I pay two coins to do that. I put my trading house out there. Then in turn order. Hey, I want to build an Ethiopia. Yeah, you can. I can. <laughs> what do I have to do? And you have to pay me a coffee. That's oh. it. That's it. It's just one coffee. But I like my coffee. No big oh, deal. Oh, you know what though? 
I have this these Brazilian beans that I don't really need. I'm going to yeah. give you my Brazilian. Pass Bra- me a Brazil. Well, I'll take a Brazilian bean. There from you me. go. Yeah. So you have sliders that show your current state. Mm-hmm. And by the way, by buying those warehouses, you don't have to spend all your beans each turn. You can save, save them in up. your warehouses. The warehouses also have a good mechanism that you can put the warehouses horizontally or vertically. In other words, you can if you have three that are horizontal, you can store every type of coffee from every region uh, up to level three. You can have up to three coffee beans of each type. Mm-hmm. Or you can go vertically, in which case this type of coffee it, it, that that is warehoused vertically, I can store up to 10 coffee that way, yep. right? And, and any combination thereof. Yeah. It's a good mechanism. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Okay, so now let's jump to the harvest phase. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the harvest phase is, is pretty simple. We do exactly what I was describing where uh, we de- delve out the coffee from each region. Each region is going to generate coffee equal to uh, the number of uh, uh, plantations that are there times two. And they go out in exactly the order we said. And you have a board which is going to keep track of that. Uh, there is also... Sumatran coffee. We didn't talk yes, about that. Yes, I was just I was just thinking about that. Tell us about Sumatran coffee. <laughs> so, in Coffee Traders, uh, one of your components is uh, you have these civet cats. Yes. Um, at the beginning of the game, you start with one. Everybody starts with one of their civet cats in Sumatra, and there's an action you can take in the very first phase where you can kind of get income. And one of your options is to place a civet cat, in another, you know, more civet cats into Sumatra. During the harvest phase, these civet cats, each civet cat you have out there is going to generate kupuluaki coffee. I think so. I think yeah. that's what it's called, but it's basically a wild coffee. Yeah, it's dookie coffee, to be honest with you. It's what it is. It, what it cat is. Poop coffee. Yeah, it, it, it is the speci- speciality where the civet cats eat the coffee bean. They can't really digest them properly. They poop them out, and they've kind of fermented inside the cat to some degree. I, I believe that's essentially what happens, but evidently... The greatest taste in coffee, once you clean off the cat poop, is this particular type of coffee. So th- these coffees act as a wild. So you can use them in place yeah. of any other coffee. And why would you use them in place of any other coffee? Well, that comes to the last stage. Uh, in phase five, that is the contract phase. So now you've harvest- harvested all this coffee. And now players are going to take turns, but in reverse turn order. Mm-hmm. And you can either... Fulfill one of the contracts on your board. So you start the game with six contracts. And they're just kind of uh, simple tiles that say maybe you want uh, three Colombia coffees and, uh, you know, two Indonesias and uh, five Brazil coffees. Yeah. You know, so they're just like color-coded icons with a number. And, you know, when you fulfill these contracts, you're going to be able to get some benefit and also some money, um, some tokens that will allow you to bump on the Arabica track. It's good. It's good to do contracts. But the other thing you can do... You can go to the coffee bar. <laughs> you can go to the coffee bar you, and deliver you, deliver coffee there. Yeah, you you got some coffee that you're not doing something with, you can take it to the coffee bar. <laughs> you sell them to the coffee bar, and then, you know, Paul Baldwin has his, uh, you know, you know, be boys' his coffee from the coffee bar, and, uh, you know, everybody's happy. <laughs> uh, the coffee bar is a multicolored space on the left side of the board where... It says I. This space only takes uh, a th- three value coffee from Guatemala or five value coffee from Brazil, and so on and so forth. If you have that.
that, you can put it there. And when you do one of those actions, you actually get to take two of those actions. Right. Instead of building one contract, you can do two of those. Uh, it's interesting because those spaces give you, some of them give you some victory points. Some mm-hmm. of them give you some money. And money can be very, very tight in this game, uh, depending on the choices you have made over the course of the game. And then at the end of the game, there is also an area control aspect to that. Each column of the coffee bar track is going to be scored. The person with the most coffee beans that they placed on there is going to get four points, and the second most in each column is going to get two. Ties broken by the people that sold the bigger, more important, more impressive coffee shipments that <laughs> yep. are lower on the track. Yep, and there's there's even, um, I don't know if, uh, maybe it was in our first game together, but there's even a milestone yes. that I think says if you have at least a level two quality coffee or higher in all of the coffee bars, you know, that's one of the milestones. So, you know, if I could it, go back, I would have done that in a heartbeat. That seems like an easy milestone. It seems easy now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And in, in that particular game, I mean, people were hitting the coffee bars hard. 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 Yeah. yeah. And it's like the coffee bar spaces are limited. So sometimes you will want to do that before you do your contracts, which, you mm-hmm. know, they're not going anywhere. Um, but then again, with the contracts, um, you know, you can get these, uh, these Arabica tokens, uh, that you'll, that'll bump you on the Arabica track. And so sometimes there's a certain color one that you want to get. And mm-hmm. also some of the, for some of the contracts, those tokens are limited. So there's kind of a, there is a race in some, um, senses to also do your contracts if you're really interested in getting those tokens. Yeah, the tokens is the last thing. Uh, the tokens is the, uh, the the fiddliest to some degree. There are some we, yeah. we we don't have to get into all the rules about it, but essentially I, think I get it now. Finally, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are uh, there are different colored tokens that represent the different regions. There are tokens that represent coffee. There are tokens that represent the animals of those regions, and there are also wild tokens. And uh, there's a set collection element to the game where if you collect a lot of different types of those tokens, you're going to rise on. On this little token track that you have on the right side of your map that could be worth as many as 25 points, but I don't think anybody we've ever played with ever Not got yet. past 12, maybe. Yeah, I think 12 is the highest we've seen. Yeah, I think so. I think so, too. It's it's tough to, to score that particular way. Um, so, yeah, so that's the essence of the game. The scoring is, uh, as Candace said, a lot of it is the area control of the individual areas. There is a lot of points for fulfilling these contracts. Mm-hmm. The bigger contracts are worth nine points each, so that's big. There are the milestones that are worth the, that are worth points. Yeah, points um, on your forgetting contracts. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And buildings and buildings. Uh, buildings score a certain number of points. The Arabica track scores a certain number of points. One thing we didn't mention yet is that you have um, there's a bonus supply. So yes. on your player board, you have a, a company supply that has, you know, you'll keep whatever donkeys you actually have in your company and any money. But there's also a section of your player board right next to it called uh, the bonus supply where you get um, there will be an action cube, which is an extra action, a trader um, or three coins. And throughout each round, you can use at max two of those things. Mm-hmm. So maybe if in the first phase you wanted an extra action, you know, you might want to try to um, use that, you know, or if you need money, you have to pull all the money in. So, you know, so there's also some opportunities of finagling that because you can only have two of them at once. Yeah. There's, there is a lot going on in this game. And I, I yeah. So let's, let's talk about our, our impressions of it. 
Um, let's start with some of the some of the positives, and then then we'll get into the weeds a little bit. Uh, first things first, gorgeous. We had really we had gorgeous. several people come last night. You know, we had we had uh, I think eleven people here. Uh, there were people that were constantly coming by, looking at the board and saying that is a that is a good looking board. And then the player mats are so they're 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 good looking, but they're also tremendously functional. Yes. Um, this is kind of an old school game, I think, is one of the things I was saying, in that it only lasts three rounds, but each round has six steps. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that that's what the old Avalon Hill games would do. It's like, okay, now we're at stage 15A, <laughs> and now we move on to 15B, and then, okay, now we go to a new round. Uh, that That's kind of an old school way of designing that we don't see a lot anymore, where we've gone to, down toward micro turns and all that sort of stuff. And even longer turns in this game aren't long turns like this. This is, this is a two and a half, three hour game, right? That, yeah, two and a half, three hours it's been taken, I think. Yeah, which means it's about an hour a turn for the whole for, for right, the whole turn right. that's that's long that's an interesting design choice that's an interesting way to go with it but the the player mat makes awesome. it makes it like totally tolerable right yeah it's smooth yeah it's so smooth yeah i i, I agree 100% like i love the board it's gorgeous and i you know after again that first game when i got used to all the iconography you really start to um, even appreciate the player board more. Um, I really, really enjoy um, the piggybacking. Yeah. Um, I like some of the cooperative gameplay of like, oh, you know, maybe I'll put a, put workers out on your, um, you know, my opponent's plantation. So I'm helping them out and I could bump on these tracks and you're mm-hmm. kind of balancing all these different things you want to do. But it's also like kind of puzzly because your resources are so tight yes. sometimes. Like yes. I'm like, I really want to play, you know, put a plantation there, but I can't do that unless I get two donkeys. I need to, how am I going to get two donkeys? You know? So there's, there's just, uh, you know, a lot. There are bottlenecks in the game, mm-hmm. right? I think that's the, that, that's a, the, that's the way I look at it, that I want to do a, B and C in order to do a, B and C D, E, and F have to happen. And how do I even do F? It's like, where do I get this? How do I do this? Uh, um, it's it's an interesting, it's it's almost a puzzle of a game. One of the things I'll say is, is that it has tangibility, right? I talk about Agricola being one of those games that even if I come in last in Agricola, I can look down at my little farm that I built. Yeah. And have a little sense of pride, like, look at my little farm. It's so cute. I yeah. have a little house, and uh, you know, these are my sheep, and they're awesome. Um, this game has that. You feel at the end of the game that that progression. There are these burgeoning coffee, you know, pl- plantations, and the locals are all employed and working. And yeah, we're doing every- stuff. Yeah, right? we're yeah. doing good stuff. <laughs> and the fact that they framed it as fair trade coffee practices, yeah. I thought, was a really smart idea because they yeah. they take away exploitation. All of a sudden. It's so interesting that with just that phrase, with just that framing, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the worker placement doesn't feel exploitative. It feels uh, um, empowering. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I, I love that sense of, you know, each round there are more plantations coming out. And so you're generating more coffee and you have the, you know, the trader and contractor phase where it's like, ooh, where am I going to put my traders to try to get as much coffee as I want, but also like, you know, the, the coffee that you need for your particular contracts or whatever, whatever your strategy is. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole thing like yesterday I tried, um, you know, my, I was a first player. And when we hit the trader and contractor phase, I decided to pass because your, your traders are so limited. You know, you can get a couple more throughout the game, but, 
Um, they're tight and you, you want to do, you know, you want to do buildings, you want to be able to follow people, but sometimes you want to just hang back and see what other people do because people might leave one plantation open and they might run out of traders and you might be able to like score some, some big coffee. That is a fact. <laughs> that is a, that is a fact there. There is a, uh, there's a brinksmanship in placing those guys into the Antwerp boxes to get coffee because occasionally somebody is going to be the only person or one of the only people getting coffee in a region that's got a ton of coffee. And if yeah. you're getting seven coffee without a fight, that right. is a big deal. Right. And then, you know, that there's player interaction there because players are going to be talking to each other like, well, is somebody going to go? I'm not going to let Tom just go get eight, eight, you know, 15 Brazilian coffees to himself or, you know. Yeah. Like, Except you don't say it that way. You yeah. say it like you have to make sure Tom doesn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I me, mean, I have other things I have to do. Sorry, I can't do it. But you, somebody you else should, has to take care of that. Him. Somebody else has to take care of that. <laughs> But um, yeah, so so I really I really enjoy that aspect and you know the the cooperativeness of it. Yeah, it has some interesting quirks to it too. Um, placing building your infrastructure in a region has nothing to do with your personal coffee production. Right, is interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. in almost every one of these games, if I have four plantations in Guatemala, including one of those three level plantations, like so huge and fancy. You would say that, oh, he's dominating Guatemala. So he's, he's gonna, gonna be... get the most coffee there. No, <laughs> nope. If, if I don't get, if the You're not person traders not, if your trader's not trading there, if, yeah. If I'm the fourth person to go and the first person chooses Guatemala and everybody else does, I don't even get a say. I don't even get a chance. Yeah. To get any coffee there, other people are profiting from my coffee. But that's because we're coffee traders. We're not coffee makers, right? right? Or, or, right. or, or uh, harvesters, rather. And 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 that can kind of uh, sometimes be a bit cut throat. Um, the other thing that can be a little cutthroat is when you're placing your plantations, um, the way that you connect to the, the, uh, higher levels, um, you know, sometimes you can block people out of being able to put their yeah. plantations on a second level. If you put your donkey out there first. Yep. 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 You can be, you can be locked out of places. Mm-hmm. Um, in the five player game that feels more punitive because there's not always a better option B, uh, I think in the four-player game, there feels that there's a little more breathing room, you know, mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. you, can, you can always zig, zig when somebody else zags a little bit. Um, but <laughs> so let's get into let's get into the butts of this. <laughs> it's the way we are describing it would sound to the listener like this is a process game. Like viticulture, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're you're building the plantations and you're making the coffee mm-hmm. and you're using the coffee to fulfill contracts and trade. It doesn't quite feel like that, really, though, does it? It, yeah, it's it's a different feeling. Um, I will say, like after the very first game I played, um, I kind of had some slight Lacerda uh, vibes from it because yeah. there was just so much going on and I wasn't sure what to do, like what I, you know, what was best to do. It has the opaqueness that yes, Vittles designs yes, have. on your on your first game, but then like as you, you know, I did get some light viticulture feelings. You know, we're yeah, we're we're putting the plantations out there, we're harvesting the coffee, then we're selling it. But it is not the same as kind of you owning that, like with your wineries and viticulture and like. You're yeah. kind of like doing the whole process. It's a, it's different than that. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you rate the teach? First of all, fa- uh, just golf clap. You did golf a clap. fantastic job teaching. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, heard, I heard Candace do the teach twice, and it was 
really fantastic both times. You're thank very, you, you're, thank you're very, you. very good at that. Thank you. Yeah, I the first game was bumpy. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think after I played it once, you know, there is a, a lot going on, a lot to explain. Last night, I tried to do it faster, like because I'm like I think. I think the more you're familiar with it, like the faster you can kind of go through things yes. and let players discover it as you go through the phases. Cause each phase is not like hard. It's not, you know, there's just like, uh, you know, some fidgety little rules here and there. And there's yeah. like a, a lot going on, but it's like, after you play around, you're like, Oh, okay, this is what we're doing. There, there are minimal questions. Uh, but the, the teaches, you know, I got better at it. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, it, but that's to say it's significant. It is it, setup is significant. Yes, it is. It is not nothing. This takes a little while to set up to yes. figure out where everything goes and what and what goes on. Um, the teach is not an easy one. It's not. Right. It's not easy to teach. It's not easy to grok when you're listening. Yeah. and learning how to play. And your first play is bumpy. Right. Your first play is just going to be bumpy. There's just a lot going on here. There's a lot of interlocking mechanisms. It's like, oh, I want to build in Indonesia. I don't have anything in Indonesia. Well, you need a worker. Oh, I don't have a worker. Oh, I'm sorry about that. That's too bad. Yeah. Um, Excuse me. How do I get another worker? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, look around. You will see worker symbols somewhere. Yeah. And you'll find there's maybe two of them (laughs) that are accessible to you in the next four actions. And there's only three turns in the whole game. Right, right. Yeah, it's tough. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is tricky. It can feel in your first play, I would say. Or, oh, no, I'll just speak for myself. It felt to me in my first play like the game was telling me no a lot. Mm. Like the game, like, like I want to do this. And the game's like, no, you can't do that because you don't have this. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay, I'm going to do this to get that. It's like, oh, no, you can't do that either because you would need to lay that plantation down on a two spot and you don't have a donkey. I think uh, Jennifer had similar thoughts and... I don't know. I don't. I don't quite think of it like that. Sure. I, th- I think of it more of like, oh, this is a puzzle. I need to figure out how to get what I need to do things. And I think the more you play it, the better you'll get at it. Yeah. Well, that's that's the caveat to that is that yeah. the second play, I'm like, boom. Um, I ran into. I, there were a lot of things that I wanted to do in the last game, and I couldn't because of the lack of donkeys. Um, <laughs> So you're like, how am I going to get donkeys? To get a donkey the normal way, you have to spend two of what are only three or four action cubes. I think that is a deal with the devil. I think that is that is a slow spiral toward death town. I've done it. I've done it before. I've never won a game, but (laughs) I know. I don't I think that's the wrong move. I think you have to plan out where your donkeys are coming from and how to get them early, which is really, really hard to Mm -hmm. do. But having that vision, having played the game, I'm like, okay, boom, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get the coin so that I can buy the thing and so I could do this and so I can do that. And you start to put together a a a map through this system but but it is a system and the system doesn't always feel um organic Mm. it sometimes feels a little manufactured to me it's like well why why do i have to put out a worker to do this thing why is this the restriction here and there are some edge cases right there are some cases in which case you can put a building you can only put a building in the region where that building is and then almost almost the exact same situation happens and oh no you can put a building anywhere yeah Uh, yeah which comes to the rules yeah some of some of the rules um 
I love the rule book <laughs> itself. Yes, the rule book itself is is really cool. It's got the flavor that matches everything in the game. You know, there are coffee stains on the book. But yeah, there were there were a couple of rules that um, gave us problems, you know. Yeah. A couple we're still not a thousand percent sure about yeah. even. Yeah, which which is kind of rough because I think, you know, when that comes up in the game and you're questioning it and you're looking on BGG for an answer and they're like, oh, maybe we screwed that up, you know. So what I'm saying is I really won that game last night and you, you guys might, made you, mistakes. I mean, listen, I'm not saying you didn't. <laughs> I'm definitely saying you could have. I think it's the game two games ago where I edged you out by two points. Oh, But my hospital, Your hosp- my hospital yeah. really... Uh... May, have kept me, may have kept me from the winner's circle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Candace and I lost all of the games that we have played of this. Yes. Um, but it still had a lot of fun. But I would say that the rule book is not great. It, it has... It, it has That's confusing flaws. language. Flaws, yeah. It does not clearly explain a lot of things. Um, now, we're in the age of Board Game Geek. Guess what? Within a month, somebody, some kind soul out there is going to get a whole bunch of geek gold because they're going to put out a you know a streamlined version of the rules that explains all the things. Sure, There's yep. going to be a good fact <laughs> out there that we're going to know what to do with. Until then, it's, yeah. it's going to be a little bit of a haul. Yeah, there were two things in uh, particular initially that were kind of uh, confusing to me. And one was, you know, the the track on the side of your player board where you're collecting these uh, different circular tokens of different colors. Yep. Like there's, there's a rule where uh, matching type and color stack on top of each other. And then, but then once you have, um, you're placing a double stack of one that's a matching color, but the the different <laughs> type, then you take those two and move them to a new space. And it's it's something that I don't know that is like necessary, but also it's it's not clear. Yeah. Like I, I read the the that section of the rule book multiple times and it was just like, I don't know. And then I had like, you know It's I've, fiddly. I, yeah, I have friends who are like really, really sharp and like no rules. I'm like, you read this too. So that and then the other the thing that um, kind of uh, screwed us up the first game, and I wish I had checked BGG sooner to mm-hmm. get the correct answer, was um, in the section of the rulebook where it goes through the refresh phase, which we don't really discuss. It's kind of just a yeah. cleanup phase. Um, but you, you're supposed to refill your bonus supply. But when it says refill your bonus supply, it specifically refers to the coins. And it makes it seem like only the coins get refilled. So I'm like, oh, do we get the cube back in the bonus supply and the trader, you know, and when you're playing the game for the first time, you might not know. You're like, maybe this is just something like once I use it, it's, it's, gone, it's gone. Right. So, Which um, would be bad. Yeah. So that was kind of bumpy. And then we also had, um, questions in terms of, uh, connecting, uh, plantations, um, because there are like some rules, uh, that were saying you can connect via pathways cause you have these horizontal pathways, but then, it also kind of says that you need donkeys and it needs to be connected from one of your spots that is uh, in the row. Lower level. Yeah, right, the lower yeah. level row. So, there, yeah, there's some some um, clarification issues with the rules. But the ones that are good are really well written, you know. Yeah, it's just, yeah. There's, there are a couple bumps. Yeah, but, you know, for a game of this complexity, you really need to have a rule book you can rely on. And yeah. we're not quite there yet with this. Uh, another thing is the iconography of the game is clear but small 
Let's say that, uh, especially with the tokens where there are different animals on the on the tokens, things like that. It can be really, really hard to figure out what those those things are at a at a distance and even even up close. Um, I wish the yeah the token game seems to be the thing that that rubs me wrong the the most, mm. just because the the you have to stack ones that are the same on top of each other. But if you get a third, then you move it off. Like there's a whole bunch of rigmarole yeah. that doesn't maybe need to I, be yeah, there. Yeah, I get it now, but it was just kind of yeah confu- a little bit confusing for that, especially for the first game. Um, and I I you know I I think the iconography is good. Um, I do agree. I think Ben was saying on the Arabica track, it's kind of tiny. Yeah. Um, but since every space is the same, I feel like after you play a game, you know what's there. So it, yeah. it doesn't bother me um, too much. That's true. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, scoring is interesting. Like, uh, oftentimes when we're playing a game, we have a pretty good idea. Like, I think that Candace is winning. I think I'm somewhere in the middle, and I think Ben is just having a horrible game. In this game, no idea. We didn't have any <laughs> no idea, idea, right? Yeah. There, it's it's the uh, the Stefan Feld thing that I was talking about, and what I mean by that is Stefan Feld's games tend to have twenty different ways to score, mm-hmm. but somehow in most Stefan Feld games, I know where I'm at. You know, roughly. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly, but I know where I am in the ballpark. There is something opaque about this design that there are so many different things that people are doing to score. And there are so many other little factors in there that when the score is added up, it is a complete mystery. And it just so (laughs) happened that our score, uh, the order of our score was the first person whose score was finished ended up with the lowest score. The second person had the second lowest score. The third one. So each person was like, Oh, after the second person, I was like, "Oh my goodness, that's, that's a so huge good. score!" Yeah, that's great. I'm pretty was, sure. I'm pretty sure you got this. Totally nailed it, <laughs> right? And then the third person comes out, and it's like, "Wow, like four <laughs> points better." I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that yeah, I had yeah. that much." And then stupid Ben. Oh, <laughs> stupid Ben with what? His 144 or 147 or something ridiculous. The other three of us in the game we played last night were within like five points, maybe eight points of each other yeah. at most. We were. We were nice, respectable bunching that says everyone played a good game. Somebody just edged you out. And then Ben comes and blows us. Us, blows us away by like 25 points or something yeah. like that. Just like, oh, just to. And he has that smug smile. <laughs> oh, I hate it. I hate it. Oh, it was great to play with Ben. Though. It, is always, it is always great <laughs> um, to play with Ben. You know, I kind of. Yeah, I totally agree where we don't know what our, you know, what our scores are. Um, as we're playing or who's winning. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I will say I kind of like it. I kind of like it because I think it just pushes me to just keep hustling and working as hard as I can, uh-huh. you know, without <laughs> worrying about like, oh, I'm I'm losing this. It's just like, no, I guess I got to keep doing what I can to get points as efficiently as possible. Yeah, I guess. I, I, listen, I, I, there are two, I'm, I'm, I have two minds about it yeah. because on the one hand, um, predictability and uh, expectation is an important aspect in drama and games are dramatic, right? Mm-hmm, and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So, so I like saying, I think I'm behind. I think I'm going to have to make some moves. And, yeah. and, and then it's to jump ahead of so-and-so or something. Doubly important yeah. to say, I need to knock Ben down a peg. Yeah. I think Ben is. Ben That's is- true. Being aware of, yeah. So you know who to kind of. Yeah. To target. If, yeah. If, if we knew how well Ben was doing, 
Yeah. Well, he just he just sits there smiling. He doesn't say anything. <laughs> he knew. He, he knew. knows. <laughs> oh, that. You know, it's funny, Tom, because like playing Churchill. Yeah. Um, there's I think it's a variant, like an official variant that you can play with where you don't score until the end of the game. Right. And so when I was playing Churchill with Drew and my friend Jake, um, we played the variant because Drew had played a couple times where you don't score until the end of the game. Right. So the whole game, a new game, I don't, I have no idea right. if I'm winning or not. And I ended up winning the game. Um, but like during the game, I was like, no, like next time I want to know where I'm at because I don't, I, I, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who to be friends with and who to target. Especially you know? in a game like that, which yeah. is negotiation, right? Yeah. Where, where that's a, where that's a factor. Yeah. So I, now listen, with more plays, are we going to have a better gauge develop? on that? Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. course. Of course we are. But that still means that, that there is something about the game. First of all, all the scoring is at the end. There's no scoring track. Right. Right. That alone <laughs> throws you into an old school design. It's an yeah. old school design to have all the scoring at the end and you just add them up. Um, the fact that looking at the board, you do not easily see what scores are, right? Mm -hmm. Agricola, all the scoring is at the end, but mm -hmm. you can look at a person's board and know darn well how well their farm is going, right? right. How, how well they're doing. <laughs> like, like, I may not know if you're absolutely winning, sure. but I know who's doing better and who's doing worse, right? Mm -hmm. I see whose mm -hmm. children are starving. Um, <laughs> this game is, is, is not that. And that's, that's an interesting part of the design. This game is different than yes. other games. It is heavy. It is complex. It puts you to very, very difficult choices, very interesting choices. It plays really, really different than other games. It's kind of like these guys' other design. They did Wildcatters. They mm -hmm. did the first Capstone game that, that came out. Caps, uh, Wildcatters was a game that I thought was gorgeous. Yeah. I thought was really interesting that used cooperation as an element in the game in a really interesting way as well. But at the end of the day, I didn't love it. I didn't love it. And I'm kind of, I like this better. I like this better than Wildcatters. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, but I think I admire it more than I enjoy it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. And, uh, you know, uh, Clay, who sent me this copy of Coffee Traders from Capstone Games. Thank you, Clay. Thank you, Clay. Um, he also was kind enough to send me Wildcatters which I haven't gotten a chance to play, but ah. I, I really did want, I do want to see kind of like what is you, the, the differences between the two, um, the two designs. Cause I know Jennifer likes Wildcatters. Yeah. There are a lot of people that I may be an outlier that, that it, that I thought it was close, but no cigar mm -hmm. uh, um, for me. But um, yeah, I, I guess my, my, my verdict on coffee traders, if, if I have to have a verdict is that for heavy gamers, I think this is a game you should play. I think mm -hmm. this is a game that every heavy gamer should play because it mixes old school elements with new school design in some really interesting ways. And your first play is going to be tough, but your second play, you're going to see hidden systems within the game in such a way that it's really quite rewarding and quite interesting. I don't know if this is a game that I want to buy and keep. I don't know that yet, but I do know that it is a game that I think every, every gamer that likes the heavier end of the pool, you know, the deeper end of the pool should definitely give a try because it, it, it really occupies a very different space than any other game I can think of, right? Yes, yes, 100% agree. It's really different. And, uh, the very, you know, the very first time I played, like I said, it was bumpy. You know, um, I was new to it. All new players, you know, I'm 
stressed about teaching it, <laughs> making sure it's clear and everything. But man, that second game, that five player game we played, I had such a blast. And then last night I had I had fun. So I'm like, yeah. I'm really enjoying it every time. And yeah, you seeing these like hidden systems and knowing when to pass and let other people take a turn and see what they do. Um, the, the piggybacking is super fun too. And, um, just finding a way to maximize the, um, your, your discs on the, um, Arabica track so that you can get bonuses, beat people to other things. Like there's just a a lot going on. And I would agree that like heavy gamers should definitely check it out. Totally. Totally. Check it out. That was Coffee Traders. That's the uh, the latest from Capstone. Um, is it? It's uh, it's coming soon, right? It's uh, it's due out it's very soon. If yeah. it's not already, yeah, exactly. Uh, may, maybe maybe copies are finding it to, to tables right now. If not, it's it's about to happen. Uh, most of the comments on Board Game Geek are, "Hey, can anybody tell me about this game?" Yeah, anybody... there wasn't much information. Yeah. out there on it. Or or Ben asking questions. Ben's. <laughs> Ben's on there for for a couple questions in the coffee trader area. So, uh, yeah, that was coffee traders, ladies and gentlemen. And let's move on to Candace's first member segment. War games. All right. So how did you, like you started gaming in 2018 and you're already playing more war games than I am. It makes me feel... inadequate no (laughs) how did how did you start how did you start down the war game path yeah so you know i'm i just again i'm an omni gamer so and i just the same way i got uh, really curious about all these different board games um i kind of uh fell into it i'll say by um a combination of historical curiosity Mm -hmm. and just also just enjoying some of the tension from war games but um, where it really started was um, I played a game of uh, PAX Renaissance at Strategicon. Yeah. Uh, I think it was May 2019. Um, and my friend, my friend Joe taught me. I played with Drew also. Um, and the three of us, I think we sat down at 1130 at night. And he's like, come on, like, let's check out this game. And I'm like, oh, Joe, okay. You know, <laughs> is this crazy? It's 1130, you know. Oh, God. Um, but he taught it to me. And he taught it to me, even though I knew there was so much going on with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, he made it seem like, you know, you're buying a card. You're playing a card. <laughs> doing some stuff. And I just, like, I thought it was, like, the neatest game, you know, having those cards as your map. It was just really cool. I kind of became obsessed with PAX Renaissance. Still have only played that one game, but I bought it, read the rules. Um, Got it right back here. Circle back to it. Just got the second edition on Kickstarter, so I'm excited about that. But anyway, that kind of got me curious about like, ooh, like, you know, it's about the Renaissance time period. And I'm like, I started kind of like getting just curious about the history. Um, Probably a month later, maybe two months later, I was randomly looking for like some uh, challenging solo games. And I stumbled upon somebody's video where... They had Comancheria, which is a GMT game. I forget, uh, is it Joel Toppin? I, I don't think. Know. I think it's Joel Toppin designed it. Um, but I ended up picking up Comancheria. I started. That was my first like, GMT rulebook. Uh, you know, <laughs> that I was just like, "What is going on here?" But I like I ran the playbook. You know, I had no idea. GMT rulebooks are <laughs> tricky, but but. They're so much better than the old Avalon Hill. And they're getting better, too. Yes. Like, the newer games, you know, more visual examples and everything, and yeah, they're getting better. But, uh, but yeah, so my friend Hector uh, asked me when I told him I was playing Comancheria, he's like, oh, is that a coin game? And I didn't know what a coin game was, so then I naturally <laughs> look it up because I'm curious like that. 
Um, and then I discovered I needed to get Cuba Libre. Right. So then I bought Cuba Libre. And I ran the playbook once again. I watched the whole Netflix documentary series, The Cuba Libre Story. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of where it started with me. Interesting. For me, um, I was in the hobby before the Euro games were existed, right? I would, in high school and, and college, I would get friends together and I would grab whatever the board games were of that time. And I'm not talking about the mass markets. I'm talking about like back in the time when Steve Jackson games, things like uh, Illuminati were, was one of the main games you would play. Wiz War was a main game that you would play and stuff like that. Um, and started getting into things like Civilization and Diplomacy and then Republic of Rome, which my friends, we call the bickering simulator, because that's all it is. You're just bickering. I was with so each impressed that you have that. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but. Well, yeah, it's one of those games. And Republic of Rome. So I'm looking for, so I go into New York City. I'm, I'm a Jersey boy, right? And the local, the, the local game store doesn't have a lot. It's got mm -hmm. some things, but not a lot. So I go into the city. Uh, and on uh, 33rd Street in the middle of Manhattan, just a block from the Empire State Building, is this little game shop called The Complete Strategist. And it is a wonderland. Uh, I literally just heard about that because apparently that is where Mark Herman bumped into Jeff Engelstein when Jeff Engelstein was buying Pericles. And that's how they synced up to make Versailles, you know, where they were like, oh, let's work on something together. He mentioned that game store. It is a place of magic. It is a place where things happen. It's, 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 it's my, uh, to this day, when I go back to New York, I always go into the complete strategist. It, it gives me the warmest feels. It's like, my family home was sold a long time ago, so I don't have a home to go back to. It's the closest thing to home that there is for me. It's 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 my oh my, my Graceland. Now I, I really want to go. It, it almost reminds me of when I first came to L.A. and went to Amoeba uh, Music yeah. Store, and I was just blown away. They I bought so many CDs and was so excited <laughs> that they gave me a free T-shirt, which actually I'm wearing right You're now. You're wearing Amoeba T-shirt. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So yeah. So so I go there. And I'm looking for, you know, th there's all these games that I've never heard of, but they're all Avalon Hill. There's a ton of, mostly they're war games. The hobby game business in that age was mostly war games, mm. almost entirely. Um, but I knew that Don Greenwood was the guy who did Republic of Rome. And there was a game by Don Greenwood called Breakout Normandy which is a straight-up war game. Two players, one person plays the the the, um, the Nazis who are trying to keep, the, the Germans who are trying to keep the amphibious landing from succeeding, and the Americans, British, the Allies, who are trying to storm the beaches and uh, uh, make headway. Um, still an amazing game. Like, it's an old-school war game in the classic sense, but still widely regarded as being one of the most playable, like mm. highly playable really fun there's a there's a back and forth to it there's a um the way the turns work is is dynamic and really really interesting and yes you're throwing a lot of dice but strategy is still a huge thing in the in the game um i fell in love with that and then the other game that i picked up in that same trip was a game called apocalypse which was supposed to be futuristic hmm. uh risk or you know risk with <laughs> nuclear weapons where you're where you're bombing places uh which actually was a um Games Workshop uh, skin on an older game, a, a 
game called Warlord, which I talked about in the very first Game Brain episode, uh, which is made by a, a guy and his wife in his garage in the in England. Oh, neat! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they made that game, and I now have his uh, his original uh, original design here. Uh, but that was my intro into war games. So even as I started discovering all these other games. War games for me were always this this the hardest crunchiest games that I that I had but were always part of the hobby for me. Yeah. I think also like just um the history um from you know a lot of war games obviously there are um non-historical war games like Root or um Star Wars Rebellion sure. War of the Ring you know there mm-hmm. are lots of war games that are not hysterical historical um, but I think, you know, in, in school, I, I didn't really pay attention to history that much. You know, mm-hmm. I was always a good student in terms of, I knew how to get an A, like, what do I need to cram into my brain to right. get an A, but I wasn't really like into it and didn't like really soak it in. So now as a grown up person, I, um, I'm, I'm getting into like, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by history and, and learning about, you know, history. Yeah, Matt. Matt is is great about that too. Like he'll he'll get a, a historical game and he'll buy three books on the subject and and read them. I always I, I love that. I, I like doing that a, a little bit too. But but he does it uh, to to the nth degree, which is always That's cool. amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. So the differences between war games and euros. Why aren't more euro game players playing war games? What are the, what are the barriers to entry? I mean, I think some of them, um, like some of the old ones you were kind of uh, discussing. I think they're they're kind of um, they can be intimidating, yeah. and I think you know some people don't aren't interested in the topic. Like you know, that's for sure. I mean, one of the reasons Euro games became a thing was they said we don't want to deal with war, we don't want to deal with fighting, we don't want to deal with with bloodshed and death. Yeah. We want to tell strategy. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we want a little more relaxing, a little more peaceful games, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, war games are certainly... I think the thing is that like, there's a, a wide variety of different types of games. And I think yeah. some people that just hear the word war game might be turned off because they're thinking there's some like epic, you know, eight-hour-long, really complex World War II game or something. Right. But there are so many different types of war games out there. And like I'm just starting to dabble my toes, but I feel like I'm gradually going to be playing like a lot heavier, crazier <laughs> stuff. That's the, that's the threat, <laughs> the right? The threat is going to suck it. you. Well, here's the thing. When people in the Euro game say, oh, that's a long game, how long are they talking about? They're talking about three hours, <laughs> three hours maybe yeah. four hours. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, that's a really long game. Yeah. When you're in a war game setting and people say, oh, that's a really long game, what are they talking about? Right, right. <laughs> They're talking about three day weekend, right? That's what they're. That's what they're talking about. Some of them are. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah, and I I haven't quite um, gotten there, but but yeah, my game of a distant plane that I'm playing with Rodney is probably going to take us a month just because we're playing it async. Um, But yeah, yeah, some of them can run long. I'll say it again: Campaign for North Africa, the biggest monster that has ever existed. I am looking for a copy of Campaign for North Africa. I really want to get one. I don't think there's ever going to be a time in my life where we're going to be able to play it. Some people, (laughs) you know, it's supposed to be like seven players on a team, and they're all just doing logistics and stuff like that. And it's still, if you do it you know, eight hours a weekend, every weekend, it's still going to take four years to finish. It's just crazy. But I would still love to get a copy just to just to bask in the insanity of it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm in. But yeah, so 
so one of the things is, is yeah, these games tend to be longer. Mm-hmm. They tend to be more complex in the rule system. And they have Chrome. That's something Euro games don't really have, mm-hmm. right? So what, what's the definition of Chrome? Chrome is rule exceptions, really, is what it is. And they're rule <laughs> exceptions that are there for historical accuracy. So there are some games that are considered light chrome, but a light chrome war game is a fiddly game to a Euro gamer, right? It's like <laughs> it's like, wait, why is why is that the case? Well, because the Panzerfaust, they they were they, they were much faster and they were able to do this and and that sort of thing different. Um, which you know, campaign for North Africa, the jerry cans, the cans of water and gas that the British are carrying in the first three years of the campaign evaporate at like twice the rate of the other ones because they were made faulty. They were not made as well. So like just the most, the smallest little ridiculous minutia. There's a rule for that in the game. Why would you do that? What are you, are you psychopathic? But no, they want it to be as realistic as, as possible. And the, the balance between realism and playability right Mm -hmm. that is a factor now a lot of the games that you and i are talking about when we talk about war games are way heavy on the playability side Mm -hmm. right sure yeah it's i i think that's an interesting an interesting thing that to some degree your gamers are going to have to come to terms with the fact that there's that that there's uh, a competing um design goal Mm-hmm. that we don't really have yeah. that you have to deal with, right? Yeah, I think also, um, you know, in, in war games, there's definitely a little bit of a lack of diversity. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm really excited um, that the Zenobia Award exists because it's a game design contest specifically for underrepresented game designers, women, people of color, LGBTQ+, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's also for specifically underrepresented historical games, you know, historical topics in games, shall I say. So um, I'm really excited to see this. This is the first year they're running it, and I'm I'm really excited to see, um, you know, what comes out of this because, yeah, I think, you know, if people can get, see games that are maybe from a part of history, if we're talking historical war games, um, that they're familiar with, they might be more inclined to, like, Step out of their comfort zone and try it, you know? 100%. Yeah. Uh, there is, you know, we, we've talked earlier this year about, you know, we like to think of our hobby as being a very welcoming place, but it's not always. And it's mm-hmm. not always for everybody. And um, of the different corners of our hobby, the war game side of the hobby uh, is probably the most resistant to that change and that diversity and things like that. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Luckily, you know, you and I have had very positive experiences where we Absolutely. have not not encountered a lot of those uh, a lot of those people, but that that can exist. And and yeah, I I felt like the wargaming community is super welcoming and cool. To yeah, me, that's that's my perspective as a black female. Yeah, our local <laughs> getting into this, which is which is uh, that's amazing to hear, right? That's really great to hear because because I, I worry about that. Like when I sit down and play a game with these guys. Would they be treating me differently mm-hmm. if I looked different? If I if I was different, there's and there's no way for me to really know. Yeah, and I, I think they're people are excited about it. You know, I feel like it was the same thing when I first started um, playing eighteen XX games. Like people are excited to see the these niches of the of the hobby, like 
kind of <laughs> growing and, um, you know, people getting excited about them. I know. I mean, wouldn't, I mean, shouldn't that be the, the, the fault? Shouldn't everybody be like, oh my God, you want to play this guy? Yeah. Please come yeah. in. Let me show you this thing. I, I, I do think that, you know, over the you know, next couple of years, we'll see, I think with 18XX and um, with Wargaming, more and more people really getting into it. I mean, um, Rodney, again, Rodney Smith from Watch It Played mm-hmm. has been for the past couple of months getting super into um, the coin series that Volko Runke started. And, um, you know, he's showing that on Twitter and I hope one, I hope one day he'll start making some instructional gameplay videos on them. Cause I think, you know, there's a barrier to entry, like learning the rules for coin games. Right. Um, it's hard. It's hard. And even if you've, uh, you played it multiple times, you still have to check, wait, can I do this? Can I do that? Um, but it's reminds me of something like 18XX where you, um, once you learn one, Yes. To learn another one, it's like, oh, here are these just little twists and turns. Um, and I love that. I it's love that. It's a really good point because what we were saying about the rules complexity being higher, it's being harder to learn. The fact that there's systems that once you learn one, you're, you're already 60%, 70%, 80% of the way toward learning the next. That's a really good development. Yeah. And I, I was going to say also, um, you know, um, I reached out to Gene from GMT Games um, last year. I think it was like late September mm-hmm. for a copy of All Bridges Burning, which is the newest um, release in the coin series. It's a, the first three player game. And, you know, at that point, I had played Cuba Libre twice. I had played um, a Colonial Twilight, which is the first two player coin game. So and I played half a game of Liberty or Death, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like at that point I was like, you know, I have some experience with the coin system, and um, I really want to try the, you know, I played four players, I played two players, I want to see what the three player gameplay is all about, and I really want to like cover it in BGG News because you know um, it's never been covered in BGG News. Um, so I want to tell people about these games because I think they're super fun. And again, like I come from more of a background of playing Euro games and I love Euro games, but there's something that's so amazing about the asymmetric gameplay of these coin games and just all of the detail and the history, um, that is put into them. It's just, it it really blows my mind and it's like really, really, really rewarding to play. 100%. 100%. We should talk about coin games and we should talk about card-driven games. I think those are the two recent innovations in the hobby that has brought wargaming closer and more accessible to Euro gamers, right? Mm -hmm. I I really think. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure if Mark uh, Simovich was the first to do it, but I know Hannibal, Rome versus Carthage, which I have back there. It was one of the first card-driven war games to really, if not the first, the, the one of the first to really take off and, and excite the interest of people. Basically, prior to that, most games were you have cardboard chits or you have wooden blocks. The reason you have wooden blocks is fog of war. Only I know what this unit is, much like mm-hmm. Stratego, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you would have these units and they would be on the on the map. You would have rules for how you can move them. And then you would roll dice to resolve the attacks, right? 
uh, well, Mark said, what if we have a deck of cards and the cards that you have are going to define your strategies and what you can do? I, I guess before that, you know, Memoir 44 and Battle Cry, uh, I'm not even sure that's before that, but uh, yeah, th- those sure. games did did that uh, uh, in mm-hmm. the... Commands and Colors. S- correct, in the yeah. casual space, uh, they did that sort of thing. Um, but here, the cards were not just telling you what you can do. They were triggering historical events that would happen back in the time, which was which is amazing because cards are inherently more strategic than dice, right? <laughs> the choice of which card to play is a decision. The choice of how many dice to roll is, well, clearly the more dice I roll, the better. I'm right. going to roll all the dice, right? Um, <laughs> that alone is great. But then to add into the fact that these cards impart history and teach you about you know with the period that's going on in a way that you know it's almost like you're reading a book as you're playing yeah it was just a crazy great invention yeah. right yeah and then coin came along and they took that they turned and, it upside down right so instead of players having a hand of cards there is a central event deck of cards mm-hmm. and you'll flip one card and then it at the top of the card, it'll tell you the eligibility of which factions can act on it. And most of them, um, only two two factions are going to, you know, in a standard like uh, four-player coin game, most of them, um, only two of the four factions are going to be able to act. And there's a priority order. And like one, there's this like really neat eligibility system where, you know, let's say, Tom, you, you get to act first and you decide to take the event, meaning you pick one of the events on the card. Mm-hmm. Then whoever's next eligible could like pass or they could do a um, an op plus a spectral activity. Like everybody has this menu of different actions that their faction can do. But the cool thing about the coin system is you always can see the event card that's up next, that's yes. sitting on top of the deck. So you can kind of make decisions like, hmm, do I want to try to do something on this turn on this card? Ooh, or should I wait for that next one? Yeah. You know, maybe maybe I pass. And, and that's why it kind of lends itself really well to playing async remotely, too, because you don't have a hand of cards. So one person can just drive the deck. Yep. And uh, yeah, it, it's really cool. And the other thing about coin, uh, coin stands for uh, counter insurgency, right? Mm-hmm. Um, these are periods of time when there is an internal battle going on in a place, sometimes an external and internal battle, mm-hmm. which means there are various factions that are working toward opposite goals. And I think the default in coin, I think in almost all, all of them, you have, it's essentially two versus two. Yeah, there's some like, se- there's a semi-cooperative nature to it um, where usually two factions are kind of like trying to do the same thing, but they still have their individual goals. Correct. The So in the Fire on, Fire on the Lake, for instance, there is the there is the North Vietnamese army and then there's Viet the VC, Kong. the Viet Cong. Yeah. Right? And the, is there a government? It, and then the, mm-hmm. yeah, the other side is the U.S. Army and the South Korean, you know, the 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 South Korean regulars or, or whatever, something mm-hmm. along, something along mm-hmm. those lines. So you are ostensibly working together. In a lot of these games, you are sharing resources in some interesting yes. ways. Yes. And when your ally is doing well, that helps you to some degree. But at the end of the game, only one of you is, is really coming out right, on top. Right, right. So you have to keep 
Still focusing on your individual victory conditions. Strange bedfellows. Sometimes it's like, I would really like the VC to mess up the U.S. Army a little bit more. So even though they're my ally, I, I, I could really use with that. And there's, a, it, it is a very interesting play space, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really interesting. Lots of tense moments. And I love that like semi-cooperative nature to it. It lends itself to some, you know, negotiations here and there. Um, and it just like blows my mind how like these asymmetric games get <laughs> designed and just work so well together. And then it also encapsulates all that history. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's really cool. And the yeah. playtimes have come down, haven't they? I mean, the 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 wargaming hobby um do you feel like it's moving toward our Eurogame side of things? I mean Uh yes. I mean, I I think there there are um I'm not an expert, <laughs> sure, sure. but like, well, I, yeah. I think there are just more and more like different types of games coming out yeah. um, that are becoming more and more accessible, right. you know? Yeah. I should say neither of us are, we're neither of us are hardcore war gamers. Yeah. We're not, war gaming isn't, isn't our, <laughs> <laughs> it isn't our primary thing, but we've definitely uh, dipped our, dipped our toes into that side of the pool a, a, a little bit. Yeah, I think so too. I think the average playtime of uh, a lot of the war games that are coming out now are lower. I think a lot of the mechanics are modernizing and using some some euro style mechanics and mm-hmm. blending those into sure. their into their games. And rule books are getting better. I think you mentioned yes. that, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the rule books are are definitely definitely getting better, but um, still could use work. Absolutely, yeah. So let's get to it. Let's get to our top five gateway war games. These are games that you might want to look at if you want to think about switching over and playing some war games. Uh, what is your number five? Okay, so I'm just going to do these in order of easiest complexity to hardest. Oh, okay. Because like they're, they're all really solid, um, depending on what you're into. So um, my number five is Undaunted Normandy <laughs> and or Undaunted North Africa. Sure, sure, um, sure. It is a deck, a two-player deck building game from David Thompson and Trevor Benjamin um, that basically puts you in kind of command or, of uh, American or German forces in World War II. So you're building a deck of these different um, army units uh, that you'll control on this modular board. And there are all these like scenarios that you play that have different goals. And it just lends itself. It's it's very easy to learn. It's like really good. You play it in, in an hour. Mm-hmm. and But it's, oh, it's so tense. And it's, it's such an awesome game. I'm playing a campaign right now of Normandy. And then I've also played a couple games of uh, North Africa. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my number five. Uh, I will confess that was my number five, but I had six on my list, and so I'm swapping a different one in there because it was actually my number five as well. Okay. Uh, I think it's a a fantastic system, a great gateway. Uh, The other one I'm going to say is this is a Euro game that kind of gives you a war game feel a little bit. Wallenstein. Um, The other, or Shogun. They're both both that way. Um, They use a cube tower where you literally take the armies that are on the board, you pour them (laughs) into the tower, and whatever comes out is the result of that battle. Kills me every time. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, it, it is a. It takes a while to play the game. It plays over only you know three three years, but it is an intense kind of you know it is conquering territories, building up armies. 
it gives you that war game feel, even though almost all of the mechanics of it are are very Euro. And I I, I take I take Euro gamer I take war gamers and I take Ameritrash gamers and I put them into that game because everybody can play in that space. It's a, it's fun. I haven't played it yet. Either one of them. But oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I hear. I hear um, it's, it's not gonna be for everybody, but I think you should try. It. Oh, I definitely want to try it. I think you'd love it. Yeah, if you have it, I'm trying it. Done. I got them both. Uh, what is your number four? Um, so my number four is Sekigahara: The Unification of Japan. Yeah, I love this game. So I have only played Sekigahara once. It's another two-player game. Um, it's set in like 1600s, um, and you're playing like some kind of like seven-week campaign. Um, yeah, it was a time in Japan where the the rulers were supremely underpowered, and they were relying on their lords, right, their feudal lords, to support them. But the lords had really mild allegiances to people, and they could easily switch sides. And in the Sekigahara campaign, they switched sides all the time. <laughs> um, and again, this is this is a block war game that Tom was kind of talking about earlier, where you have all these stickers on all these blocks, so. Um, you cannot see what units your opponents have. And then you have these cards um, in your hand that are kind of driving <laughs> what you're doing. And one of the things that I really like loved about Sekigahara is that, you know, you'll go up to start a battle with someone and, you know, you might have five units and it's kind of like a bluffing game, but you might not have the cards you need to actually let those <laughs> units attack. So, yeah. um yeah, it's just super fun. Lots of tense moments, but it's it's easy to learn. Like the rules aren't aren't that hard. It takes about about three hours. Um, yeah. but it's yeah, it's it's a real enjoyable, game. amazing game. I totally agree, hundred percent. My number four is Friedrich. You've heard me talk about Friedrich. You heard me in the <sighs> in, in the Maria review. You heard me talk about about Friedrich. I am obsessed with this game. I think it is absolutely amazing. It takes a while to play. It plays four players. You should only play with with four players. It's the perfect count for it. Um, it is a war game in which all of the rules are on a playing card. Everything you need to know <laughs> about how to play the game is on one playing card. That blows my mind to this day. That's so cool. And yet there's so much strategy, so much movement and counter movement and bluff and all of the things that you want in a war game in such a tight, streamlined package. Uh, yeah, get you can get people hooked on the idea of playing more war-type games by playing Friedrich for sure. Yeah, that and Maria, they're both like really high up on my list. I'm going to make those happen soon. Dude, we we gotta we gotta list this a year long for you. I know. But it's gonna be great. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. What is your number three? Uh, my number th three is seventeen seventy five Rebellion. Okay. Um, it's in Academy Games uh, Birth of America series. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically an area control game for two to four players. Um, I don't think I've played it with two yet, but I played it uh, with four. And when you play with four, you play in teams. You have uh, event cards for their four di uh, four different factions that have their own event cards that allow them to move, and you're kind of like pushing cubes around. But uh, you resolve combat with these custom dice, and it just it's it's a really fun, exciting area control game that uh, I feel like is a good kind of crossover between war game and euro game. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, my number three is Breakout Normandy. I already mentioned it. It is a really old school game. It's an Avalon Hill game from the, the 1980s or 1970s. Um, so 
you know, if you want to play that with somebody, you're going to have to set the whole thing up because setup takes a long time. <laughs> All the little cardboard things and put them in the right place. But once you explain the game and 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 it gets going, it just has such a playable momentum, and you, you the stakes of it are are is one side going to be driven back into the sea, right, or held off until reinforcements can arrive, or can they break through into this, this unknown territory? Uh, I I really think it's one of those war games that if you 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 get somebody in the right mindset, you can start you can start them off in there, and then boom, they're right in the deep end. And I'm super curious and hyped to play that too. <laughs> Another uh, one to the list. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no such thing as too too big a list. That's for sure. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is Cuba Libre. So yeah. we've been we've been talking about the coin games. Um, I still I think you know there are a couple of coin games that are not too hard to get into, but I still think Cuba Libre is the best because the map is small, um, and it's just probably just the easiest one to start playing and you know wrap your head around it and see if coin games are something you'll be interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I started, but yeah, it's one to four players on the Cuban Revolution. And it has just some awesome asymmetric gameplay. And, and probably the most streamlined of the coin games, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. I think so, yeah. I like it, I like it very much. Uh, my number two is War of the Ring. Ooh. Uh, I think War of the Ring is a flat-out war game. So good. It's a war game. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a card-driven, dice-led war game in which you're mustering forces, moving them, maneuvering them, fighting. Uh, there's siege warfare in it, too. There's... Everything you're going to want in in a, a old school war game, right there, but tremendously accessible because you're also telling the story of the Lord of the Rings. So. Yeah, it's it's so good. Yeah, hundred percent. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, yes, got to try War of the Ring. Hundred percent. And last but not least, this is the most complex that you're you're adding to your on my list. list. Yeah. Uh, it's Labyrinth, the War on Terror. Um, the original, uh, the, the Volko original, right? The yeah, first... it wasn't his first. Was I think Wilderness War? Oh, okay, which is a card-driven game on the French and Indian War. But sure, sure. Yeah, but Labyrinth. So if you're a fan of Twilight Struggle, um, if you're not a fan, you should check that one out too. It's not a war game. It's more of a. It's a historical game though. But um, Labyrinth, War on Terror is a um, two-player game. You can play it solo. Um, one player's taking on, uh, the role of the jihadists and you're trying to kind of explore war events. Um, and then the other person is the U S and you're trying to neutralize, um, terrorist control and everything. And I think a lot of player, uh, a lot of people are going to have a hard time with the theme. Um, but uh, it's an educational thing, you know, it's yeah, kind the war of Afghanistan, the war against terrorism. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. But um, if you can stomach it, you know, I think it's you'll learn some things. You'll learn about different uh, groups, motivations. And um, and the gameplay here is just excellent. You know, it's yeah. it's it's very, very tense. And, you know, again, it's a card driven game. So you have these cards that have an ops value or events and you trigger different events that are going to help you. You're moving pieces around a board. Um, it's just, again, a really, really excellent card driven game. And a bold design. You yes. know, any, anytime you're doing a design about a war that is still ongoing, right? That yeah. is a very, very current, uh, it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to balance. Mm-hmm. It's a hard thing to address in the right way. And uh, yeah. Volko I, does it really tastefully. Yeah, yeah I think so too. Yeah, and yeah, actually, the title I think is "War on Terror 2001" to question mark. Correct. And there are two now two expansions that add cards 
um, based on events that have happened after after the time period of when the game was created. But yeah, it's it's a little it's a little bit um, heavier. But if you play heavy Euro games, it's not that complex. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's a, a rewarding experience. Um, and yeah, you learn about a little bit more modern history. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the war on terror that is still kind of going on. Um, my number one is Twilight Struggle. Ah. <laughs> um, so you said it's not a war game, and that's true. It's not a war game, but it is a war game. It, if you play Twilight Struggle, you will get addicted. You will get addicted very, very quickly, <laughs> and you'll be all in. And once you've played it, you understand everything you need to understand to play almost all card-driven war games. Mm-hmm. Because that's it, true. Yeah. You're Choosing the event or the ops value, you know what the ops value is. You know how to right, spend it. Right, you're setting it. yourself up for yeah. Yeah, the entire system is 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 basically the war game without the war pieces. That's right. it. That's, right. That's it. And you know, just Great one game. of the greatest games of all time. Uh, Candace, I have I have not done this since I started podcasting, but I didn't look at the clock. I was literally just totally <laughs> in our conversation. Yeah. One hundred percent just in just just having this conversation. I look over and I'm like, we're way over time. Yeah. We are not gonna be able to get to a sommelier today. Okay. It is such a delight to have you, the Omni Gamer, with us on the podcast. It, it Every time I've never had played a bad game with you, I've said that before. I really enjoy uh, your insight and your perspective, and your articles. You're you're doing a great job on BGG. Thank you so much for that. Thanks, uh, Tom. The, it's 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 important. It's it's the it's the uh, virtual meeting place for everybody in the hobby. So yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be a part of the Game Brain team. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I always love playing with you and <laughs> everybody. Like. That's why when, you know, the pandemic first hit, I was like, oh, yeah. like we just started playing together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to playing a ton more games with you. Hundred, hundred percent. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a uh, Discord channel. We have a YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Game Brain Pod, a Facebook group that's always very active. Please get in those board game sommelier questions. We're always looking for more of those. And you have been listening to Game Brain. Produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, and Trey Alsop. Special thanks to Daedalus for the incredible music you are listening to right now. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. And thanks to Edomar Peleg for our incredible graphics. You can reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks so much for listening, and go play some games with friends or make some friends with games. <laughs>